in a very it short was, period. It was dinner jackets. It could have been the dinner jackets. <laughs> it the dinner jackets. Yeah, it could have been. <laughs> maybe, maybe Steve. I think there was a, there was a slightly incendiary uh, speech from a certain Mark Morris given as well <laughs> okay. in, when we were wearing those dinner jackets. We went on stage, and um, and Mark said um, we'd been working on this game for three years, Star One Year, and we've complete we'd completely run out of money. Um, but despite that, we did not take any money from publishers because we did not want any publishers fucking up our game. Okay. <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, Layla and I are talking to independent game developer Chris DeLay, best known for his work on Uplink, Darwinia, Defcon, and Prison Architect. This episode was recorded on March 22nd, 2022, and was engineered by Michael Hermes. Well, uh, what I usually start off with is, what's the first video game that you remember? Oh, uh, well, when I was a kid, um, I pestered my parents, and they finally bought me a, um, a Spectrum, a Sinclair okay. Spectrum 128K for Christmas. Right. Yep. Um, I assumed you had one of these these British machines. Good British, yeah. I, I think a lot of British game designers came up on the Spectrum or the Commodore 64. Those were kind of your two options. Yep. Um, and it came with a pack of games. And in there, there was a Thundercats game. Okay. It was like a sort of Thundercats. It was called, called Thundercats, and it was like a platforming game. Um, and um, I just remember being completely blown away by it and yeah. just thinking, this is amazing. And it's like the graphics are so good, and um, the sound is so good. And that, that's like one of my first like big gaming experiences yeah. playing that game. And it was kind of my games computer as well for okay. the first time. Because you know. my dad had been kind of... Um, He'd been into computing before it was really a thing, a mainstream thing, and he'd bought like, computer he kits. Builds his own. Okay. Yeah, yeah, he'd bought them when they were sold in electronic stores. Wow. And yeah. they came as like a circuit board and the components that you had to solder together. What could you even do with a computer at that point? Like, do you remember? Nothing. Yeah. You could uh, you could turn it on, right? <laughs> and then you'd have a very basic prompt, um, and um, the chips had already come flashed with like a, a startup, and you could program them. That's all you could really do. Um, Eventually, he bought something called Dragon 32. Do you mm-hmm. know what that is? Mm-mm. It's like some ancient computer system that's lost in the mists of time. Yep. Um, and um, but it had just had some really, and it was all tape driven. It was all like loading games off tapes. Right. Um, and he started programming on that. Yeah. Right? So he was messing around with it, programming graphics on screen. And I can kind of remember seeing that when I was a kid. Really? I can remember seeing like um, apples and oranges coming up on screen and like because he'd figured out how to do colored circles right. you know, <laughs> yeah. in whatever uh, programming system was on board. Yeah. Um, and that kind of had me intrigued even then, actually. Yeah. And then the Spectrum 128 that I had, one of the things that was so good about it is that in the main menu, right at the very, like in the, the, when you turn the thing on, there was like four options. The first one was to load a game from a tape. Right. And the next option was basic. Sure. You know, yeah. Right there in the main menu. Yep. And yeah, if you clicked on that, you had a basic prompt and you yep. could make a game. Yeah, I often, when I talk about the Commodore, we had a Commodore 64, and what I often talk about is that, you know, the game just opened you into a basic prompt, right? Yeah. Or the game, the computer. <laughs> you know, turned right. it on, and, like, it was, like, asking you to program it. Yeah. You know, which was, I think, 
hugely influential on a lot of people from our generation. Yeah, that, like, because it was, it was so immediate, and it was it wasn't like you could go on the internet and 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 have an, an array of a thousand games to try. Right. You know, you had like three <laughs> <laughs> games on tape, and then you had the basic option in the main menu. So you were bound to stumble on it. Um, yeah, and I can and also I can remember that it had come with a kind of inch thick basic programming guide as well. Right. It kind of been packed in in the box. That's cool. Um, so did you yeah. teach yourself basic then? Yeah, so I, I started pretty much straight away at the, at the same time as like playing games. I right. kind of um, started messing around with um, graphics on screen, getting the screen to flash different colors, um, getting things to appear on screen. Um, yeah, and it's always kind of gone hand in hand for me. Right. You know, because I'm not really sure which I enjoy more, to be honest. You know? <laughs> Playing games or making games. Yeah. It's pretty close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they're, they're, they're different things, linked, obviously. But yeah. Um, do you remember what type of games you made back then? Yeah. Um, I made like um, I made like a really crap Garfield knockoff, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that, and, the, and it was sort of, I can't remember why Garfield seemed important at the time. It was like a cartoon that was on TV. Right. Um, and I just made this game. And, but you could move around a world, you know. It was, and, and you could move this little flashing box that was kind of you. Um, and even then, I can kind of remember drawing, like, the artwork for the tape as well. Like, I made, like, a little tape in. Like, oh, I Because yeah, <laughs> yeah. every time you finished work, you had to save what you'd done back to a tape. Right. Um, you know, which in hindsight is sort of like horrendously unreliable. <laughs> yeah, it seems crazy. I kind of don't, I never used tapes. I was able to start just with floppies and I kind of don't believe tapes worked. Like it seems, the whole idea seems yeah. crazy. <laughs> well, they didn't work. That's, right. that's the problem. They worked sometimes. Right, yeah, you know? yeah. But, you know, and you know, like a program has to be perfect. You know, every bit has to go through, yeah. right? So, that's right. you know, it's kind of a lossy, well, at any rate. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And when you, when you, when you saved it back to the tape, and you press the record button on the tape recorder at the same time, you would save over the previous version right. with the new version. <laughs> right, And right. Um, if, if it's gone wrong at that point, you're in trouble. Yeah. And I think that actually happened to me like years later on the Amiga. I think I saved over some game I was making on the Amiga right. um, and onto a floppy disk, and it never recovered, and it never worked again. Yep. And that game just went like... Did you did you did you try to dive into like uh, assembly at this point, or would you kind of no, stick with basic? Or? No, I was only seven. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> All right. I we wasn't should, ready for assembly. You should probably keep that. Basic's pretty good for a seven-year-old. It's, it's pretty, perfect for a seven-year-old. Keep that context. Yeah, okay. that's right. Um, I, so I stuck with basic, and that, that was more than enough at the time. Um, and and to be honest, I only really messed around then. I was only sort of dipping the toe in. Yeah. Um, and it was it was later on it was it was when I was more like a, a young teenager like I think fourteen or something when I got an Amiga, um, and I don't know how familiar you are with the Amiga, but I, I also... had an Amiga too. Yeah. Right, great. Um, what sort did you have? Uh, Five hundred. Yeah, that, that's what I had. Yeah. <laughs> and to me, that was like a straight continuation because um, again, it had basic was very easy to get to, um, and the games. It had a very British feel to it, to me. Sure, yeah, yeah. You know, it felt like a classic British games computer in hindsight. Right, yeah, And at sure. the time, it just felt like this is just more the same, but the graphics are even more amazing. Yeah. Powerful, but a little janky. You know. Very janky, <laughs> yeah, very janky. Held together with, you know, a duct tape. <laughs> um, and, I, you know, and one of the first things I got for that was Amos Basic. Okay. Um, which is like this programming package that you could get. Um, and it was kind of... It was sort of like the unity of its day. 
Okay. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. it was like a or t- or tick eighty or Pico eight if you're familiar with those sure. systems. Yeah. It was everything. Okay. So it was built around the basic programming language, but it had a whole bunch of inbuilt tools. Okay. So it had like a sprite, visual sprite editor version. built in, right. and you could draw sprites and save them into a sprite bank. Um, and it had a music editor and a map editor, and you know, and you could, and then they had a bunch of commands that were really not basic. They were yeah. really high-level commands to to animate sprites on screen from that sprite bank. Yeah. Um, yeah so the um, that was the game that I lost on the Amiga. That was an Amos Basic project. I'd made like a Star Trek Next Generation game. Oh wow! And um, okay. so so then by then I was using like Deluxe Paint, mm-hmm. which is like this epic paint package that you could get. Yep. Um, and I and I'd kind of. I think I'd like drawn the interior. It was like a graphic adventure. Okay. It was a bit like a kind of Monkey Island sort of graphic adventure, and and I had like the bridge of the Starship Enterprise and everything, right. and you could just go around on this like mini adventure. And it, so you had different rooms. Was it yeah. like like inventory puzzle based, or was it like uh, no, dialogue based? It was, based it was all dialogue based. It was okay. like a it was it was like reams and reams of like conversations to go through to solve this mystery. Um, and it had animation and stuff, and it had graphics. I think it was it was fairly good. For the t- for a thirteen-year-old yeah. or fourteen-year-old, yep. who, um, uh, who played who played your games? Me, yeah, <laughs> no, just me. Yeah. yeah, I mean the Amiga. So so to me, like the Amiga is inseparable from being at school, and there was a huge kind of um, culture of sharing games. Um, so um, I I know I. I, I, sh- I shared a lot of games with my school friends <laughs> and received a lot of games from them. So we would just give each other floppy disks. Okay. And then I'd come back with a copy of Syndicate or something okay. um, on Amiga or Cannon Fodder or something like that, all these classics. Right. Um, and I just built this huge collection. But I never shared any of the games that I'd made. Hmm. Um, Were you too nervous to do it? Or? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I don't think I got over that until I was kind of like 21. Wow, yeah. <laughs> you know, like years later when Introversion was properly starting up. Right. Like I was quite happy for it to be just a hobby for me, really. Yeah. Did you have like siblings or did you show your parents? No, or no, I'm an only child. Okay. And so I sort of spent all my time doing this. You know, mm-hmm. I just spent, um, I spent forever either playing games or, or making them. Right. Um, wow. And I can remember trying to make a kind of a SimCity style simulation game back then but not really getting anywhere like not really being able to figure out how on earth you could do it yeah you know because looking it, looking back now on like your experience what was the issue like it's a completely different architecture right internally for a, a simulation based game like that that's built on um like a grid a yeah. SimCity style grid and then you're running like a sailor sailor automata type simulation across that grid i just wasn't thinking in that way at all i was still thinking in the way of the sprites on a sprite sheet right. stood in front of a backdrop, and then uh, and then having them move around when you clicked and things, right. um, which for some reason was easier for me to conceive of at that time, like how to make that sort of game. Right. Um, yeah, and I think um, I got I, yeah. You mentioned that you had Sid Meier in recently. I think I seem to remember like my addiction to Civilization really began then. Around then, yeah. I had Civilization. Um, on my Amiga, right. and it was like the greatest game I've ever played, <laughs> without a doubt. From right from the moment I fired it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to ask, like, what are the games in this era that, like, really you were that were like important to you? Um, and that one's without a doubt definitive. I mean, um, I still play Civilization now. Sure. On and and the original, you know, it's a nostalgia thing. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. there's no doubt the later ones improved on it in every way. 
but I still love their their sort of slightly janky graphics and their, <laughs> it's two D grids and everything and the and the sort of weird EGA pictures of Napoleon and stuff that would come up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Have you played other Sid Meier games like Pirates? Yeah. And... Yeah. I, that, I had that one on the Amiga too. I've played most of the Civilizations on and off. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Amiga version of Pirates was excellent. Yeah, it, like, was, it was. It was a really, really great. good version. Um, that was a great game. Um, yeah. I don't think he's put a foot wrong, really. <laughs> <laughs> At any point, you know, there's a certain style, definitely. Yeah. And, and also, it's, I mean, part of that is because, you know, they're just the most, it's the most open-ended game design I've ever seen. It's sort of... Right. Even in Civilization One, it was already a game that you could replay over and over again. And it would be different every time. And it was a you know procedurally generated world, which is pretty pretty hardcore for those days. Um, what were other games around that time that you played? I loved um, I loved classic British games. So um, well, I say classic. That's like a in hindsight word. But I loved think anything from Bullfrog, Peter Molyneux's world. So anything like Populous or uh, Syndicate, Theme Park mm-hmm. is an obvious um, touchstone. I mean Theme Park. And Dungeon Keeper, actually, both um, brilliant um, Peter Molyneux games, right. um, directly influenced um, Prison Architect. Right, sure. Years later. Yeah. Um, so you really liked sandbox type games where yeah. things were open, players could really do what they wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, not not only that, but they were just. I mean, it's hard to underestimate how big of a deal Bullfrog were actually back sure. then. They were kind of like the the like the game studio. Um, yeah. And I remember really I mean, wanting to work for them, actually. Sure. Yeah, um, I was going to ask, like, you've been, you know, you were making games since you were seven. Mm. So throughout this whole period, is that what you wanted to do? Did you think, I want to make games professionally? Yeah. Yeah. I, I really did. Um, I really did. And I definitely had that really in my head. By the time I'd made it to sort of um, age 16, I was already kind of picking subjects based on, right. you know, how to be a programmer in the games industry. You know, so I was picking... Um, like computer science and mathematics and physics um, and electronics, all the kind of logic stuff, all the kind of techie stuff. Right. Because that was kind of my entry point, you know. I am a game designer, but also, you know, I've always been the programmer as well from the start. You know, so that's kind of how I get it, how I get it done. Right. Um, yeah, and I think also there was a run of, I mean, Syndicate as well is another, another classic Bullfrog game, but there was also Cannon Fodder. Yep. Do you remember Cannon Fodder? Yeah, I know that was really big in the UK. I only came aware of it later. Yeah. It was massive in the UK. Um, it was absolutely massive. And it, um, Cannon Fodder's control scheme, where you control a little squad of four little soldiers running around a map, is mm-hmm. exactly like control control identical to Darwinia. You know? Oh, <laughs> There's okay. a straight line of inspiration. So Darwinia, to me, is, to, to me Darwinia was actually me... Um, referencing all those Amiga games that I loved and all those Spectrum games that I loved. And I got as many of them in as I could, you know, and classic arcade games as well. So Space Invaders and and Centipede and stuff. And the Darwinians are kind of based on lemmings. Right, You know, like these, like, cutesy little simple creatures that you kind of, they're adorable, you know, and you don't want them to come to any harm. Um, And and the control scheme is pure, like, cannon fodder and syndicate. Right. yeah. I, I'm trying to remember. I, I played Darwinia like 10 years ago or whatever. Yeah. But like in Cannon Fodder, how do you control four characters? Like So they were a little squad in a line. Yeah. And, and it was all mouse-based. Mm-hmm. And you would click with one mouse, left mouse button would click, and they would walk towards that position. Right. And that would leave the mouse free to aim. 
Okay. And so then as you move the mouse around, they would aim towards wherever you were pointing. And then when you press the right mouse button and held it down, they would fire their guns. They would all shoot. All okay. four of them would fire in that direction. And then whilst you were firing, you could tap the left mouse button and they would lob a grenade. Right. And it was just a wonderfully satisfying control scheme. It was really visceral and really kind of... And, but it was also a little bit janky, you know? Because <laughs> you'd, you'd be running towards the enemy, right? And then you would see some big gun turret appear or a tank or something, and you'd be kind of, no, 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 turn around, turn around. But they kind of, you would fumble the control a little bit, and they wouldn't quite turn around quickly enough. Right. And you would die. But it was fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was great fun to fail in that way and to die in that way. Yeah. Um, I mean, I definitely remember that feeling from Lemmings. Like, yeah. That also similar thing of just that, kind of yeah. like... like Everything's going fine. Oh, oh, no, don't. Oh, now it's all, you know. <laughs> they yeah. found the hole and now everything is falling apart. You kind um, of have that hilarious catastrophe, don't yeah, you? Yeah, exactly. You know? And you, know. it's not unfair. The game hasn't been unfair to you. The game has been completely fine. And actually, it's a sort of, it's a system-driven thing as well. You're not playing a bit of story content that's been created. It is actually a simulation, albeit a simple one of, you know, a gun battle occurring. Yeah. And you, but you kind of, rather than you feeling deflated, you actually think it's really funny that it... It went that badly wrong, and then you just try again. Yeah, you know, and we did the same thing in Darwinio. As soon as you died, it was like, ah, oh, yeah, I've died. I just create another squad and carry on. So, Chris, you said that you know, at age sixteen, you started taking classes that are taking you in the right direction and programming. So, at that age, you knew that you wanted to be a game designer. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, earlier, yeah. I mean, I would say even in the Spectrum days. Actually, I, I was you know, I, I told my parents I wanted to design games. Yeah. Um, Did you follow like the personalities of the British scene then? So you had like people. Not as much on emulate? the not as much on the on the spectrum. I did you know I, I because you have to remember that the only real information source that I had was kind of a once a month magazine. Yep. Like your Sinclair or something. Yep. That would kind of ha maybe have some interviews, and even then Peter Molyneux I think had started appearing I think in the early days, of, right. late days of the spectrum. I can't really remember. Certainly early days of the Amiga. Right. Um, and um, you know, I can remember playing Elite a lot as well, another, yep. another famous yeah, game developer. Yeah, I was going to ask if you had been into Elite, yeah. yeah. But I didn't really, I kind of bounced off that on the Spectrum. I was a bit too young and it was too hard. Yeah. Um, and it was a bit too cold and sterile. And then on the, on the <laughs> Amiga, I, I can remember getting really hooked on Elite 2. Yeah. You know, and just flying around this big galaxy um, and just kind of being in awe that you, that you could... On this one little floppy disk, there appeared to be a limitless galaxy. Yeah. You know, and I could fly to some um, star system, you know, a hundred light years away, and I could land on the planet, and there would be a star base there, and it would have a sign overhead that said what it was called, and there would be people there offering missions and things. You know what I mean? And it's like, how is this possible? Right. You know, and and then you know now now I can I can look at it and I can think theorize of ways to do that, and it's essentially another procedural. Uh, procedurally generated universe. It, yep. it doesn't really physically exist. Yep. It's sort of generated on the fly when you land. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I am interested how like different different cultures and countries kind of develop their own. What's the right term for it? You know, game style, right? Like, mm -hmm. I don't know if you also like Lords of Midnight. Someone pops pops in my head. I don't know if you played yeah, that, but like, you know, where it's just just this very open ended system where like all sorts of all sorts of weird stuff can happen, and it just seems like yeah. that's part of the British DNA. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you if you compare it to the, I mean, I never owned back then. I never owned any of the consoles, so I never owned yep. a, a Nintendo. Sure. I never owned a um, what would have been the same a Sega Master System or something like that. Right. I never owned them. Um, and they were all into the world of like Mario and platformers, yep. weren't they? Um, 
and uh, Zelda, I suppose, early yep. Zelda, and mm-hmm. very, very different feel, you know, and Final Fantasies and the like, you know, very sort of um, content-driven, story-driven um, adventures that you could go on with a little uh, group of people. Yeah. You know, very yeah. different type. How would you describe the British games back then, and does it still carry till today? That's a good question. Um, certainly, there's a quirkiness to British games that goes all the way back to then. Um, I mean, certainly, if you go back and look at, there's a lot of weird stuff on the spectrum, you know, because it was such a sort of wild west. Nobody really knew what was possible. Um, so, you know, if you look at Manic Minor or anything like that, um, or uh, any of the games of that sort of era were really quite weird, you know, mm. quite weird games. Um, and I don't know, maybe what you say is true. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a, I hadn't really considered that there was a, a British leaning towards system driven, right. open simulation-y type stuff. Right. Um, but maybe there is. Yeah. And certainly, but it, it comes down to individuals, doesn't it? I mean, like for me, again, Bullfrog was such a big um, name in the early Amiga scene. And they made all of these games like Populous and Theme Park. And, and they were what we would now call like a sandbox. Sandbox, right. Uh, colony colony sim, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Sure. They weren't called that then, I don't think. They were just like Bullfrog games. <laughs> <laughs> Everything was just games back then. You never knew what to expect, right? So Yeah, um, and I think it was, it was a very weird uh, yeah. time. It, it hadn't really settled down into yeah. well-established genres. This is a, this is one of the reasons why we ask like what you play when you were you were a kid and growing up because I do think it is very instructive. The people who had consoles, the people who had PCs, it really it lays down the tracks of where you end up later in life, you know, and you know it's it's really fundamental. Yeah. Well, since I have you both here, like in today's the games industry, what are like games identity that you can say like okay, well these these games make the Japanese games. Like what other games can you can you mm. give an identity to, and how would you describe those games? I mean, the Japanese scene is very distinct. I'm not really an expert on it, so like I probably shouldn't be representing it. But okay. like, it's one. It definitely has its own distinct feel. I mean, Japanese RPGs are like a, you know, a, a thing. Like they have a certain form of story, a certain way the game progresses, um, and you know, it's it's you know, it's pretty well known. Um, you know, I think <laughs> there's sort of a Eastern European, you know, like Eurojank style that you can kind of see is, you know, as president as, as well. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's just different different types of people make different types of games in, in different yeah. places. There's definitely flavorings from around the world, isn't there? Yeah. There's definitely a certain feel of playing playing like something like the Final Fantasy VII remake, and you sort of think, oh, this is this is such a sort of Japaneseism right. <laughs> in this game. There's like there's a weirdness to the way the characters talk to each other and yeah. stuff that possibly would never have come out of a British studio. I don't know if there's yeah. a word for the opposite of jank. I guess polish, right? Yeah. Like it seems like that's what Japan had. They had, and I don't, you know, like I don't want to go too far down like the cultural anthropology road or whatever. But like it seems like they they do have like a an appreciation in their culture for perfecting things, right? And like, I don't know if that mm. is part of it, but like they, you know, you look at those early Nintendo games, you know, the Mario and Zelda, they, 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 they still play beautifully, right? Like yeah. you can tell that like they really took time and like just exactly how jumping should work and how fast you should run and how you introduce elements. All this stuff that we're still talking about today, mm. they had somehow figured out way back in the 80s, you know, where in, in Britain you had games that were kind of wildly creative, but kind of just were thrown out there, right? Mm. Like, <laughs> they weren't, they, polish was not the, the, the key yeah. word, right? 
I think maybe part of it is that the those early Japanese development teams were already teams actually that were sure. quite well formed and yep. into larger companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, a lot of these games we're talking about in the British game scene have come from you know one crazy designer who had a you know yep. a, a contract to make a game in six months or something. Yep. You know, I mean, another another classic example would be Chaos. Mm-hmm. It's not oh, a, sure. yeah. not a well known game yep. actually on the spectrum because I can remember playing that with my friends mm-hmm. and we didn't even know what what perhaps now is called couch multiplayer right. or something like that you know mm-hmm. where you're all in the same room together taking it in turns yep. you know and you know he's still he's still active in the games industry now isn't he Julian sure. Gollop mm-hmm. yep. um, you can trace that all the way back to then but that's like a early that's like a early um, procedural simulation war game. You know, right. because the the game map was empty. Yeah, you just each character would start in the corner of the screen, yep. and there was nothing. And then by the end of the game, the world was full of magic spells that had gone off and yeah. dead bodies. And it is some really crazy ideas, right? Like they had uh, illusions, which that's might right. or might not be real, and you wouldn't find yeah, out right. until like you know you actually attack the creature that's or whatever. Right. Yeah, um, you had to make that gamble, didn't you, of um, of whether you would summon a creature as an illusion, and the spell was guaranteed to succeed. Um, and then there was, and everybody had a disbelief spell. Right. And at any time they could disbelieve the key asset in your army, yep. and it would just evaporate. But that that's that only works because that game was designed to be played amongst friends sat in the same room, you know. And then, yep. and then, so they would they would literally have to cover their eyes whilst whilst you summoned a creature. Yeah. So they didn't know if it was an illusion, and then they would just look at you and just say, no. Nah. Yeah. No way, that's real. <laughs> you know, and then they would waste a whole turn dis- disbelieving your your golden dragon. Yeah. And then you would have the last laugh. I mean, it's like classic. <laughs> yeah. And I know in the UK you have a term bedroom coder, right? Yes. Right, which I've heard repeated enough, but it's not wasn't really a term we used over here. No, like, I, it's yes, very distinctive a cultural thing there. I mean, we had we actually we used to use that as a fra- a catchphrase. We used to go around saying we were the last of the bedroom programmers. Right. You know. <laughs> And um, I think we we stopped when the indie world just exploded, right. you know, a sort of two, which I would say is sort of two thousand and eight ish, you know. And it was it was ridiculous to keep claiming that that was us. Um, and um, I don't think that we quite figured out that culturally speaking, that didn't make sense right. to Americans. <laughs> yeah, I only figured it out after I heard it enough times, you know. Yeah, um, it's like this because that's where our computers were. Yeah, you yep. know. My spectrum was in my bedroom. Still are. <laughs> yeah. In some cases, yeah. <laughs> cool. All I right. guess uh, there's, there's garage programmers, right? Okay. It's more of an American Yeah, term. yeah, that's what we'd say. We, we started in the garage, yeah. Right. Even though, like, that rarely happens, literally. But, yeah, that's the term. Yeah, so you have something like Apple Computer that, that they famously started in a, in a, in a garage. Yep. Um, just culturally, it just isn't really something that is ever a thing in the UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, the garage is where you keep your bins and, and, <laughs> and your bicycles. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not where you have your startup uh, tech yep. company. All right. Well, let's get so let's get back on the timeline. So yeah. you're kind of going through what we call high school, um, mm. and you were you know taking classes, um, you know that you thought could help you make games. So what happened when you got to like university? Like, what was next then? Yeah. Well, I did like. Yeah, from 16 to 18, I did A-levels, which is, you know, that's what you do in the UK. Um, and um, so that was all that was all focused on. I mean, I didn't just do it as a sort of, you know, as, as uh, the, the way to get into the games industry. That Those genuinely were like the topics that I also wanted to do anyway. Sure. Um, my, my brain just kind of works that way. Um, and um, 
So from there, I knew I wanted to go to university and I knew I wanted to do computer science. That was the obvious entry point. Right. Um, and um, Imperial College in London was where I had in mind. You know, mm -hmm. So all the way through sixth form college, when I was sort of 16, 17, 18, I had in mind that I was going to come down to London and do my degree there. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I ended up doing. And so that's where... So, so um, when I arrived in London, obviously, it's a long way. I'm actually from the northwest of the UK. Oh, okay. It's hundreds of miles away, and it's yep. culturally completely different. Sure. Um, and I just went, and I literally went to this, you know, the, the big city, yes. <laughs> the biggest city in the UK. Didn't know anybody, um, didn't know where anything was. Um, and the first night as a student is, you know, it's a little bit nerve-wracking, you know, because you don't really... You haven't, I've never lived, you'd never lived away from home. Sure, yeah. Um, and I've packed up my computer and everything. And then that night, I met Mark. Oh, really? At the bar. Okay. Excellent. Yeah, Mark wow. Morris over right. there. There he is. Um, <laughs> he's asleep, I think. And, um, and I met Johnny, um, Johnny Nottenbelt. Uh -huh. um, and we just by total random chance. The very um, first night. We were all living cool. in the exact same building. Wow, okay. Uh, same student residence. Uh-huh. Um, and we just got chatting, and um, you know, we shared we shared a we shared a love of Star Trek and mm. uh, <laughs> and computers and programming, um, and um, it was it was the beginning, and that, that's that's nineteen ninety seven. Okay. So um, it's twenty five years, twenty five yep. years ago now, wow. you know, um, and yeah, we've kind of been best buddies ever since, really. Yep. <laughs> and Tom Thomas Arundel. So those guys were doing the exact same degree as me, identical. And Thomas Arundel was doing electrical engineering. Right. And he was also in the same building as us. And he was kind of two doors down from Mark's room. Right. <laughs> so it's one of those, like, you know, what's one of those weird things where you look back on it and you think that was so random that we just randomly... Um, yeah. So got all put together. We just all place. got put together. Yeah. But I guess it's how things at that form. Yeah, you know? sure. We didn't realize it at the time. Yep. You know, we had absolutely no idea. Um, so how did yeah? So what was the path then from like starting to become friends to eventually making games together? Um, well, so pretty pretty early at university, I think maybe 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 second year of university. I did four years. I did four year four year master's degree. By the second year, I was working on Uplink, okay. um, which is ultimately Introversion's first game. I'd kind of had this idea, um, you know, to make a video game that was all about computer hacking. Yeah. And I'd never seen a video game about computer hacking. Right. Um, and Did you ever play Hacker? Like no. In, in high, people told me about Hacker on sure. the Spectrum. It's not a game I ever played. Yeah. Uh, I had since gone back and played it. Um, but that wasn't really my inspiration. Um, my inspiration was actually um, War Games, okay, the sure. movie. Yeah. Um, because it has that's Matthew Broderick hacking away on his computer, if you remember the film. Mm -hmm. And he spends a lot of time war dialing and things. Like he, he figures out how to war dial all the computers in the area. Right. And he thinks he's war dialed his way into um, a games company. Right. And it's actually NORAD's missile defense system. Right. <laughs> you know, and this is a great story. And it's just, just it's a real, it's a, one of those lovely films um, of its era that to me was hugely inspirational. Um, and obviously, a massive inspiration for Defcon as well. Right. Yeah, I was about to say it's probably going to come up again. <laughs> yeah, because both of those games come from that you know, have that common source actually, um, and you know structurally, um, Uplink is is a little bit like Frontier. You know, 
Mm-hmm. I spent all that time playing Frontier Elite 2 on my Amiga. Right. And that idea of um, there being a mission board and you take missions to break into a computer system and steal some stuff or destroy a computer system um, and then you, you escape and then you spend money upgrading your computer and upgrading your, um, you know, your, your home system to me is like a straight, it's like a mapping, you know. That was you upgrading your ship in Elite Right. In, in Frontier Elite 2, and uh, that was you taking missions yeah. from the mission board, you know. When you started the design, though, it's one thing to say, like, I want to ma- make a game about hacking. Mm. At some point, you have to figure out quickly, like, what, okay, what am, I, what, are, what am I actually doing? What are the mechanics? What are the verbs? What are the, you know, yeah. like, how, how long did it take to figure, for you to figure that out? I think I had that fairly, I think that was pretty early. I think I had that sorted. I, I knew it was going to be a pretty randomly generated universe uh-huh. with just a load of computer systems um, available that you could hack into. And I knew that you were going to have a kind of a home computer and then you would connect to other people's computers and, you know, do your do your mission, do your nefarious stuff that you've been hired to do. Um, yeah, and I, and so to me, the, the structure of the game, the, the, the verbs, as you put it, is very much like the software tools that you yeah. have available. And then, so they're, they're, it's like the game mechanics are literally listed in the store. You know, you can buy a, a password-breaking tool. Right. You know, you can buy another tool that will hide your location. And you can buy another tool that will switch off their firewall and allow you, and allow you to access their deeper security systems. Right. And they're all upgrades. So you, So you... Straight away, you have this lovely upgrade path, you know, where you start with a really crappy computer that can't do anything. And you, but you can see in the shop, I really want that new bit of software. You know, that's going to that's make life so much easier. You know, because at the beginning of the game, I have to delete all of my logs manually. Um, I, have to de- I have to cover all my tracks manually, and it's, it's time-consuming, yep. um, and it's mandrolic labor, and it's dangerous because whilst I'm doing it, I'm connected to some foreign computer system. And I might get caught. Right. Um, but when, but when you do that at the beginning of the game, you kind of understand how the mechanics of the game work and how you're going to be caught. Yeah. And then later on, you buy the software that lets that occur automatically yeah. because you've you've earned the right to automate that that part of the game away, and you can start thinking about bigger, more complex hacks. Yeah. You know. And so that's kind of the ramp through the game. You know. Yeah. That's it's almost the, the content of the game as right. you work your way up that list. Yeah. It was a good. It's a good design pattern to give people stuff that's difficult early, and then yeah, yeah feel more powerful. I mean, sort of, you're making an RPG in a way, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's there's strong RPG elements to it, and you you even had a you had a series of ratings. Um, you had a neuromancer rating, which was kind of an ethical rating of whether you're a black hat or a white hat hacker, right? You're a good guy or a bad guy, um, and you also had a an uplink rating, right. which was how skilled and dangerous you were. And they ticked up every now and then based on you earning experience. It was behind the scenes. It never told you you've gained 50 experience. Oh, really? Okay. How, um, did, it, how did it affect the game, though, then? Well, but that's exactly what it was as a system. So the missions that were on the mission board often had a minimum uplink rating requirement. So when you went to the mission board, half the missions might be grayed out. Right. And it would say you don't even have sufficient uplink rating to read this mission, never mind right. um, attempt it. Um, so you could tell... It was like the game was laying out in front of you that there was this, um, there was bigger stuff going on. Yeah. And the you know the higher uplink missions were much more difficult and dangerous, um, and had much more of an impact on the world. You know, so you would end up doing things where you would break into the kind of global criminal database, right? Um, and fabricate a criminal record for somebody, 
um, and then issue an arrest warrant for them and then issue like an Interpol warrant for them and, and, it, would, you, and it, would, it was like a really dodgy <laughs> mission that you could take. Yeah. And your Neuromancer rating would just go much darker. Yeah, you know? It was like sure. the sort of renegade score in Mass Effect. You know? When you get caught, like how does the game tell you that? Mm. Well, so what would happen was um, it wouldn't happen straight away. You would be traced. So within, within, within 10 minutes of you completing a mission, the game would try and catch you. So it was done from a simulation point of view. So the game would try and uh, trace the logs that you'd left on every computer that you'd connected and see if it could find a way back to you, the player. And if it managed it, um, it would set a little flag saying, um, you've been caught. Um, and then 20 minutes later, your screen would go blank. And then, and then there'd be this little scrolling message on the screen that would say, um, unfortunately, evidence has been submitted that proves that you were responsible for this illegal hack. And so as a result, unfortunately, um, Uplink Corporation has had no choice but to completely disavow all knowledge of who you are. You are completely right. independent, nothing to do with us, which means all your accounts are closed, all of your hardware is being confiscated, and that's the game over event. Um, and that was the, that didn't happen straight away in the game. Earlier on, you would receive a fine, you know? You would get like a $10,000 fine um, and your, your uh, uplink rating would go down a bit because you'd failed. Um, and then later on it got more serious. And certainly if you hacked a bank or any sort of government system. Um, but it was that game, that game tried its best to be a kind of a bit of uh, like total fiction. So, so the game never, would never admit that you were playing a game. So when you, when you entered the game, you log in, you type in your username and password to load your save game. And right. that would log you into the game. And you're effectively com you're connecting to this this company called Uplink Corporation, and you're doing all your hacking through them, and they have all your hardware. That's awesome. You know, like in, it puts you in character, right? That's away. right. Yeah. So it's like and it's it's like an early version of it's like connecting to like a, a data center, you know, and then so you when you bought upgrades to your hardware, it was just occurring in some distant remote hardware room. And know? when you get caught, do you go back and log in and have a new mission? Or you can it's, go back to a level? Your save game, it, I was really mean back then. <laughs> I was really mean. And, um, and the game, by the time that message came up on screen, your save game was already toast. Okay. The game had already deleted your save game. So at it was that point. permadeath. Permadeath, right. absolutely. There wasn't even a menu option. Was that the was that the right design choice? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely, because um, it was all in service of creating utter paranoia in the mind of the player. Sure. So I wanted to make you feel because I'd watched a bunch of documentaries about hackers and a lot of interviews with hackers, and what they always said that they felt all the time was paranoia. Okay. Because they never knew if on some computer system they'd left a little trace yep. behind, a little log, you know, and that was part of the thinking behind not ending the game for 10 minutes, even though they have failed. And um, the game already knows that this player is done for. Oh, really? It'll let you play yeah. on for 10 more minutes. Uh -huh. So you never actually knew for certain which system you failed on. Huh. Um, it's like OCD and paranoia. <laughs> like you can't go back to check because then you might get caught just because you're going back right. to check. And wow. Yeah, oh, that's right. Every time you connect to a system to see if you were, if you'd covered your tracks, you make more tracks, oh. you know? How long was the game? How long to how long to play? Yeah, it took you how long? Um, to make. Uh, uh, so you can you play it in one sitting? No. Okay. No. Um, because no. the thing about permadeath, like this is, I think this is kind of what's related to, is that perma 
permadeath has to fit in with a question of how long a game is, right? Mm. Like the longer a game is, the more impactful having permadeath is, yeah. right? So like, yeah, how long did it take? For to sure. I mean, you could finish be, you could easily be playing for, for 10 hours by the time you hit a game over event. Right. And, uh, you know, it would take you that sort of length of time to save up the money and to build up the hardware. Um, but a lot of the upgrades have occurred in the player's mind as well. So, yes, you're forced to start again. I mean, if you clicked on your old save game, it, it did delete the save game and it replaced it with what I called a tombstone. So when you clicked on it, it kind of brought up like a stack sheet of how many computers you'd hacked into and how much money you'd made. Right. Um, and it even gave you some hints about why you'd been caught, actually. There were little hints in there. Right. And there was a secret credit screen sc scrolled away in there as well. If you clicked on the buttons in the right order, it would bring up like a secret <laughs> background screen. Like there was a whole bunch of secret stuff hidden in that game that was kind of in fitting with the hacking weird systems right. element. Um, and so you didn't necessarily feel that you'd lost 10 hours of progress because it wasn't that you were working through a 10 hour long story. You could go back to the game and you would start again with a new basic computer, but you knew so much more, you know, and you could, you could do the early missions very quickly and level up very quickly and get back to where you were, you know. Was it roughly the same each time or was this sort of a roguelike? There was different, it was, there was a little bit of a roguelike element to it, definitely. And um, there were different routes through. There was a background story of sort of interconnected missions. Mm -hmm. There was a sort of, um, there was a sort of dodgy, uh, freedom fighter group that were trying to destroy the internet because mm -hmm. they decided the internet was just a thoroughly bad idea right you know and um and then there was another group that were, had realized this and uh, were trying to stop them and various other there, there were always other hackers in the game um that, that you would see on the sort of on the boards of like these guys have done missions recently or these people have done this hack and they would start showing up dead you know in the story and there was kind of a news page where you could see these reports and it would say like uh, this prominent hacker has has been found dead and then this prominent hacker has been found dead and it was working down the list wow, you know yeah. they're all being bumped off yeah there's like a shadowy conspiracy stuff you know that you could get involved in and there are and you could take completely different routes through that story depending on who you worked for um, at that point <coughs> you um... Were you part of any like forums to discuss those games with anybody? Was there like a community discussing games? Um, not that I can really remember. Not not that not that really springs to mind back then. Yeah, I was kind of curious about this as well because you talked about how you hadn't you hadn't shown your games to anyone. Yeah. So presumably yeah. at this point you needed to get over that hump, right? Yeah, but... I'd spent um, I'd actually spent before Uplink, I'd spent a whole year making. Um, a map editor for Dungeon Keeper. Oh, okay. <laughs> for free. Right. Um, and because uh, so I just I'd loved Dungeon Keeper so much, and um, I'd reverse engineered the, the the map files that were in the game on the CD, and I'd made an entire map editor, um, and and had been shipping it on the internet for nothing. Right. Early version of um, internet distribution, and it's kind of Mark and Tom's fault that um, okay. <laughs> you know because my my plan was actually to. Um, to make Uplink a free download. Oh, know, I was just right. going to make it a free yep. game that you could download and play. Because yep. um, I just wanted people to play it. You know, uh -huh. and I, wanted, I wanted people to experience it. Um, and, and, and I didn't really, had, you know, I didn't really have any uh, aims to make a game company then. You know, but Mark and Tom did. And Mark and Tom were really keen uh, to uh, not give it away for free okay. <laughs> uh, and instead 
to uh, you know build a whole games company around this game right. actually because uh, that was the only game we had we didn't have other games in development or anything like that um, yeah and so that was sort of the beginning of introversion right back then you know okay well how did you how did you do it because it wasn't there wasn't an easy way to sell games back then no no there really wasn't um, I worked on the game loads, and I think we, uh, I think John Johnny Nottenbelt came on board and worked on it some as well. We were still all at university, um, and we knew that we were going to sell it predominantly as a, a disc. Mm-hmm. You know? So it was going to be a kind of a mail order setup. Okay. Um, you know, because it's all pre. This is two thousand and one. Yeah. This is way before Steam. Yep. Um, and it wasn't feasible to download a thirty megabyte video game yep. then. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and our web server was was a beige computer on the floor in my bedroom. Yeah. You know, <laughs> just sat there humming away, running our website, um, and so um, and so we um, in order to, in order to get people to know about the game, we had identified a bunch of journalists that we knew um, were really into this kind of thing, and would maybe enjoy it. Um, in the UK, there was a whole bunch of games journalists. And they all lived in the same place. Okay. <laughs> they all live in this one town called Bath. Yes, um, I keep hearing about Bath. I never listened to journalists, UK journalist right. podcasts. I was like, what, they live in London? Why Bath? I don't know why it was then. That's where Future Publishing were, which I think were the... Okay. They were the guys that ran PC Gamer, PC Format, PC Zone, everything, I think. Yep. Um, Edge Magazine. They right. were all there. And in fact, quite a lot of them were in the same office. Right. And they were all buddies. Right. You know, they were all a bunch of... Um, they were all a bunch of 20-somethings just hanging out. They love video games too. Um, and so we, we spotted, we recognized um, people like Kieran Gillen um, as somebody that, that seemed to enjoy games like that um, mm-hmm. and might like it. And so we, we burnt a, a gold disc of Uplink okay. um, and just wrote on the front Uplink <laughs> in pen <laughs> all right, and stuffed it in a, in a, um, a brown envelope Right. And it had a little covering letter saying, you know, you know, we're this little game company, you know, <laughs> please play our game. You know what I mean? And it was, it yeah. really was, um, it's pretty thematic for a shot, too, shot so. in the dark actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he, and he tried it. He just tried it out. You, you, did, you, you picked him out individually and picked him out to individually him, to him. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and, I, and I think there are a few others as well. Right. Okay. Um, and, um, he tried it and, and he loved it. And he just and he got a big kick out of this really underground thing, you know. Um, and they told us in hindsight later on that it, they passed this disc around the office right. and they all yeah. played it. Um, and their editor, their editor had been playing the game. And in the, at the start of the game, you sign up and you create an account, and there's all this internet dialing sound, like mm. proper old school modem, yep. you know, like stuff going on. And he freaked out. <laughs> and he jumped out of his chair and pulled the network cable out the back of his computer. Because this thing was saying, like, you are connecting to this underground hacking community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, where your identity is anonymous and right. you are free to commit crimes yep. to your heart's content. So long as you don't get caught, you can keep going. Yep. You know, um, what are you doing? Well, we put this random disc we got in the mail into our PC. And yeah. <laughs> and it, well, that's right. It was just a gold disc. And it didn't. And the game just wouldn't admit that it was a game. Yeah, sure. You didn't save the game. You logged out, right? And when you logged out, it saved the game. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. And when you came back, you had to type your username and password back in. Um, you know, so it really was like accessing an online system, you know, and doing all these hacks. And it was, I think it's total fiction, I think it was called, the concept. 
Mm -hmm. It's like a sort of creative concept of total fiction where the game, nothing in the game. So, so the game, you could never be shot in the game. Mm -hmm. So we talked about, you know, what about the FBI catch you and kick your door down and arrest you? It's like, well, you can't. Can't, actually can't do that because yeah. that violates total fiction. Is that why the credit yeah. screen was like hidden? You kind of that's right. It? That's why the credit screen was hidden. Um, and that's why uh, the options screen was framed in terms of options for this application that yep. you were running to access the uplink network. And it was covered in messages like, do not distribute this illegal software to anybody. <laughs> were, you, were you guys yeah. calling yourself introversion back then? Yeah. Like, did you have that somewhere in the game? Um, it comes from, so where is it? It does have an origin with that game. We were going to do a demo. Um, there was going to be a demo of the game. And um, I was really interested in Myers-Briggs uh -huh. at the time. I was really interested in the different personality types that exist and might like this game. You know, and I've always identified as like a strong introvert, you know, mm -hmm. um, really inward looking, inward thinking. And I think that the other guys in the company are a bit like that, too, other than Mark, who's like a stinking extrovert. You know, he's like an outgoing, <laughs> gregarious so party type. INTJ? That's right, INTJ. Yeah, How I'm did a... you know that? <laughs> I'm a psychic. Uh, I'm an INTJ as well, and right. it's actually true that it's the most common type among game developers is or game really? designers game designers yes yeah it's it's um yeah it's it, and <laughs> it's, it's um it's the right type for a certain sort of game design i think yeah um very system driven architect mindset yeah yeah definitely um you know but it, it makes you crap at pies but it makes you <laughs> <laughs> makes you really good at crafting intricate uh, pretend worlds yeah i saw right? i saw some grid that like gave like a short nickname to all the 16 types and they called yeah. the intj the mastermind and i was like mm. oh, well <laughs> maybe I guess I can yeah see that. i've heard it called the architect as well yeah. before actually yeah. um yeah there's something something nefarious about mastermind isn't there right. <laughs> <laughs> i'm not sure about that yeah so anyway um i thought for some reason, I thought it would be hilarious to call the demo version the intro version, okay? Because okay. <laughs> I thought it was a really full, funny play on words. Right, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Um, and, I, and that ultimately became the company name. Okay. Um, yeah, and so um, those guys at PC Gamer and PC Format and stuff all passed this disc around. Um, and I think we got some emails saying, yep. you know, we love it, it's great. Um, can we put it on the cover disc if you've got a demo? So we gave them the demo, and um, that it went out on, in all the sort of British games magazines. Yep. Um, and then we just got this flood of orders wow. pouring in. You know. Um, what does what does a flood of orders mean back then? <sighs> I can't remember. Like thousands that we're talking. In a in a week, definitely. Really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. And I think early on. So early on, for so for we in the in the earliest days of all, we actually were manufacturing every disc Yourself. ourselves oh my gosh so um we had some we had a bunch of gold disc burners um and a label printers and we had like a lot of bubble jet printers <laughs> and we were manufacturing them you know at a painstakingly slow pace the handling um, part of shipping and handling and then stuffing them into <laughs> bags and shipping them yeah shipping them around the world yeah um and the and, in, and the entire website ordering system where people would pay via credit card um, and then the order would come through to us. We'd written all of that as well, because it was 2001, and none of this online service stuff existed. Yep. No, one, no, the, none of this cloud existed, and Steam didn't exist. How um, much of your week did that take up? 
well, we only we only managed to do it for about two weeks before we were flooded. <laughs> <laughs> we were absolutely flooded. We didn't know if we were going to sell ten copies, yeah, and, sure, it, and then we sure. were going to go and get real jobs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so at that point, we um, we you know we had to we ordered a proper professional set of CDs, um, and by the time they came in, we were able to start dealing with orders. Yeah. Um, I think I think it, on various days it was hundreds in a day, if I recall. I might be wrong. Uh, can you remember? Does that sound right to you? Yeah, because the first order was 3,000. I remember that. that first was, order was 3,000 copies. First order means like the first day? Or the first the order, no, the first, first the first print run we did oh, the first print run, was right. 3,000 copies. You knew you needed, needed 3,000 yeah, copies. Because we couldn't manufacture 3,000 yeah, sure, <laughs> copies of the game. Wow. Um, I mean, hundreds a day, that's pretty good just now. It was great. You yeah, know, it was, like, so it was, that's very impressive for... Yeah, and I think it was $20 or something. Yeah. You know, So we, we, thought, we thought we were making big money, actually, yeah. very quickly. Um, and then obviously more press coverage as a result of that. Yep. Um, and I can remember we had a sort of backlog that was building up while we were waiting. We kept having to wait for the print run of more discs to come in. Um, but we were still at the point when we would go to, we went to Tom's house and, and we had this, we printed off this massive order list of orders that we hadn't yet fulfilled. And we had all the CDs stacked up here and we had loads of empty brown envelopes here and loads of stamps, <laughs> and we just had to stuff all these envelopes by hand, you know, we had yep. to just, just deal with this 2,000 copy backlog, yeah. um, and ship them all out, and then we had to take this huge box of product down to the post, yeah. postal since, office, you know. <laughs> now, since you kept shipping out discs, you know, on a rolling basis, and did you, did you start to update the game? Like... Like, because you started getting feedback, presumably, which is, I mean, this is your first game, yeah. right? So you must have discovered some things about the game that you didn't realize until yeah. people played it. So Yeah, and there were bugs in there as well. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, I think that we started distributing downloadable patches on our website okay. fairly quickly, actually. Um, so we, we did some updates. Um, we, we, we did a couple of big content updates to the game as well. Okay. There was a whole late game. We, we felt the game had kind of run out after... Maybe six, maybe eight hours of play, um, and we designed a whole other system that was for late game players. That was kind of local area networks, mm -hmm. um, and that really was like a roguelike. Yeah, you know that that the the touchstone for that was NetHack. Yeah, you know, and I and I wanted to make um, computer networks that were a dungeon, right? And you would physically move around this network, and that was your connection point. And each computer on that network, each room, was another computer that you could hack. And they were all interconnected. And so one computer system on the network would have all the keys to open doors to get you into another part of the network. And then when you went into there, there would be like a bank of three computers in that subnetwork that were guarding the mainframe. Mm -hmm. And they all had to be dealt with one at a time. And then when you were done there, you could move all the way around and go into the, into the main mainframe and steal the data that you were there to steal. Right. Right? And it is through and through a Zelda dungeon. Right. Right. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and you would face the, you would get the dungeon key, you know, the master dungeon key, and you would go and face the boss at the end, which was the mainframe computer. Um, and all the while, there would be like a system administrator chasing you. And it was this big content update to the game that I think we shipped as a download, a downloadable patch. Right. Um, and I think probably still 10 years after Uplink's launch, people still sent us bug reports for the worst bugs that were in the very first disc version of the game <laughs> because the discs were still floating around, still floating around. and there like, wasn't really any kind of, it didn't auto-patch, sure, yeah. it didn't tell you there's a new version available, there was no yep. App Store update. You had to seek out this, this zip file and, and patch your own game. You know. 
was real formative years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Did you did you have any sense of like how much the game was spread around just piracy as well? Like, um, we knew it was there. We'd been we'd we'd seen it. We'd been able to find it on the pirate networks. Right. Um, and that definitely stung a bit. Not gonna lie. We could we could see that there were very very popular pirate downloads of of Uplink, and we'd actually made the game. I mean, you're you're making a game about hacking, so you're like literally that's your like target. Ar- that's like yeah. your target audience basically. Yeah. So and actually, we'd embedded a lot of. Um, we kind of had the last laugh because some of the keys that you needed to really complete the game were actually on the packaging. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I oh, yeah, that's yeah, my yeah. little evil mastermind giggle there comes yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. I still get a tickle out of the fact that there was a there was a little set of code numbers printed on the back label yep. um, that were needed to access some of the biggest secrets of the game. Um, that's like genius. And then under the under the um, I stole it from Metal Gear Solid. June. I borrowed it from Metal Gear Solid um, because the first Metal Gear Solid, ha- um, there was a boss fight that you couldn't complete unless you'd read a little caption on the back of the packaging. It gave you the critical piece of information that you needed to defeat that boss. Um, so and- once you did that, did you see like the number of pirated copies go down? No. I mean, that was there from the very beginning. Um, and also, the original version was a CD jewel case. It was like a, how music used to be distributed so it's a cd in a, a square case and underneath this if you if you bothered to lift up the cd plastic right. there was another whole secret booklet underneath there that was full of more codes and code breaking and hacking challenges and stuff that were related to the game and they sort of related to they gave you like ip addresses and stuff that you could access in game and not and the, the hacked versions never got any of that you know so it was like our one little one little way of avoiding it yeah, yeah. and we also i think we also artificially ballooned the size of the game because the game was actually only about four megabytes mm, right back then <laughs> just making it bigger and we ballooned it up it to 30 harder. megabytes yeah, to, yeah. to try and discourage um pirate downloads oh that's funny this didn't work at all you know? <laughs> this doesn't even remotely work yeah, yeah because yeah. internet access was just going like this at the yeah. same time you know um yeah but you know it was we, we were trying to deal with something that couldn't really be solved but you know looking back on it now um, you know, we, we think we think of pirate users now as as like some of some of like the strongest leads you can get. Sure. You know? Yeah. And we you know years later we found with Prison Architect that there were multiple pirate versions, um, but that every time we did a, a new update, a whole bunch of them would buy the game. Right. <laughs> right? Because like, it's, we like this game. I'm tired of. I'm tired of having to go to the Pirate Bay to download the new version, um, and. Um, you know, when you, when you when your mindset flips and you think they love the game, right? They're playing the game constantly, you know, and they're they're some of our hardest fans. Yeah. And you know, we shouldn't be thinking of them as um, lost revenue, you right? Know, because they're just people that haven't yet been convinced to pay money yep. for the game, you know. But they're happy to play for free. But if we keep working like this, maybe we can convince them. Yeah. You know. That's that's a good approach. Yeah. I think it's the, it's the only well, the alternative no choice. Is, is madness. <laughs> Change your mindset. <laughs> but some, I remember some some people definitely looked and said there's been a, there's been a million pirate downloads. Therefore, we've lost ten million dollars. Oh in yeah, revenue. that's ridiculous. It's like that's 
bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, am I allowed to swear on you? That's totally fine. <laughs> uh, maybe make it a British swear or something, and then mm-hmm. we'll be... <laughs> oh, bollocks. There you go. <laughs> um, okay. Cool. All right. Well, maybe we should move on to the next game then. Yes. Um, so you know, Uplink did really well. You guys must have been really pleased. And so, what did you what did you think of to do? Did next brilliantly. Um, yeah, did great. We we wrongly concluded that we were now millionaires <laughs> <laughs> and that we no longer needed to worry about money. Mm-hmm. Money was no longer a thing that had to concern us anymore. Right. Um, were you still finish, finishing college? Uh, no, we were done with university okay. at that point. Um, and I started work on Darwinia, right. um, which was our ultimately our second game. Um, there was kind of, so this is sort of 2002 to 2005 right. period. You know, there was a really early pre-indie gathering I think it was a I think it was a GDC event or something. Okay. And it and it was and it was called um, Experimental Gameplay Workshop. Yeah, well, they still do it here. Yeah. Do they really? Yeah, it's the, they're having the twentieth anniversary this year. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's yeah. It's well, pro- Darwinia owes its existence to those guys. Really? Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm, I can't you... remember the names of the people behind it. Um, what year were it? Two thousand and two. Must be one of the first ones. Yep. I think it was Daniel and Robin. They've been running it for a long time. Yeah, I don't know, I don't know right. if they did it back then. So um, they did. They did um, experimental gameplay workshop and the, and and modern modern what we would consider now modern shader based graphics hardware was just starting to be a thing, rather than software rendering. Um, and somebody had figured out that if we took a sprite um, and put it on a rectangle, we could maybe have a million of them in a game world. Right. Because sure. for the first time ever, graphics cards can do a million triangles yeah. without breaking into a sweat. And what kind of new games could we make? I've never seen a game where you have a million people yep. running around. I still haven't. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they ran a whole gameplay workshop like that and they came up with a whole bunch of games and I read about it. Yeah, I think in Game Developer Magazine or something like that. Oh, you might be talking about the game Jam. Like, um, mm. You're talking about like where a bunch of people come together and they all kind of like... It was a jam. Game it, for a couple of games. It definitely was a jam, yeah. Okay. But it was called Experimental Gameplay Workshop. Okay, okay. That's uh, what the two called. things might be related. But anyway, yes, yeah. go ahead. It might, there might be one, one might have come from the other or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I looked at that and I thought, that's brilliant, right? Brilliant idea, yes. Right? And, and, so, and so Darwinia was born out of that. So the thinking with Darwinia was, let's have this... Um, Let's have this giant landscape. We're going to make a war game, and there's going to be kind of you know a hundred thousand soldiers on on each side, mm-hmm. you know, and they're all going to be running around, and it's going to be a battle on a scale we've never seen, you know. Right. Um, but there was no artists at Introversion. Right. I'd <laughs> say this is a huge jump for you guys because Uplink was it wasn't exactly Uplink just a text game, but it was like you know pretty much pretty much yeah. that yeah two D. 2D interfaces, yeah, crappy design and everything, but designed to look like a graphic uh, right. hacking terminal. Right. Uh, so thematically, it worked. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we didn't have any artists, so I drew a person. <laughs> I drew a human, and it's the Darwinian. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it was the Darwinian, and and, and um, that was our human. Yeah. Right? Just a nice low detail uh, sprite, um, and. Um, and I just, just we had this game world. We had we had simulation going on. We had all these Darwinians. They weren't called Darwinians, but we had all these little soldiers running around battling each other. Um, and um, you know, it it never it didn't really hold together as a game very well. It was a brilliant tech demo, and right. it was it was unusual, but you couldn't really play it. There wasn't. It was quite passive, you know. It might be what you would call an idle game now. Really? Actually. Okay. Because you just kind of watch it. 
you watch it and there are spawn points um, and you can direct you could direct the army you could say go that way you know or focus there but then they would they would set off and then once they'd set off you couldn't control them anymore it was indirect and I think there's like a that's that's to me that's classic bullfrog Peter Molyneux indirect control stuff it wasn't like a real-time strategy game where you could you could marquee select your units and then like command and conquer or whatever um, they would go there and they would fight. And then if they captured the spawn point there, now you would have more spawn points and then you, you would get that steamrolling effect, you know? Um, and so, yeah, so I hadn't really put that together, but it's, that kind of was a bit of an idle game then. Right. Um, now, all of those mechanics made their way into Darwinia mm -hmm. because the Darwinians are alive in the theme of the game. Right. In the thematic world of Darwinia, they're the little simulated life forms mm. running in a computer system and they're, they're sentient. Um, and they won't take instruction from you because they have their own mind. Right. Um, but they will follow their own. So you could promote a Darwinian to an officer, yeah. and you could get him to say, go over there and attack that building. And then they would just form a long line of Darwinians all going and right. doing that for you. I, I'm trying to remember, do you control the officers directly? or You could move them around directly, and you could set their orders. And then okay. they would stand still with a giant flag overhead, and it had an arrow on it, and it was okay. like the waving a big flag saying, go over there go in that there. direction. It's pure lemmings. Yep, okay, you know? sure. They're, like, they're, they're analogous to the lemmings characters from the Amiga. Um, but it was missing. It wasn't enough as a game. Um, and I think we probably messed around with that for the best part of 18 months, actually. Mm -hmm. um, struggling to figure out exactly what you would do. Like, it wasn't enough. Um, and finally hit on the idea that you could be this little squad of uh, four or five heavily armed guys with lasers and grenades, soldiers, um, much like Syndicate and Cannon Fodder. Yeah. Right? And, then, and then you would assist the army of, the, the much bigger army, you know? You would be like the special forces of all of this. Right. And so at the beginning of the game, it's only the squads. It's only the squad and there is no army. Um, and you kind of have to beat back. So the, the theme of the game is that they're inside a computer system. They've, they've become self-aware and sentient. But they've, um, in doing so, they've contracted a lot of they've contracted a computer virus from the internet, mm -hmm. and and that virus is now manifest as, um, uh, it's like centipede monsters and uh, spider monsters and mm -hmm. um, flying dragon things, and it's all kind of weird and abstract. But they were all like video game archetypes, archetypes yeah. you know, but they're personified as evil, evil creatures, and they they replicate it so. Whenever Darwinians were killed, they would leave behind their little digital soul and it would just sit there right. <laughs> floating around. And if the virus could touch it, it would turn into more computer virus, you know? And then you could do the same in reverse. So whenever you killed the virus, you get their little soul back mm -hmm. and you could um, take it back to your, your base and you would get more Darwinians out, you know? Um, and so you, as you played the game, you would raise a Darwinian army and, uh, you, and then... Um, at the start of the game, they're defenseless. And by the end of the game, they have the same guns you have. They have the same lasers and they have the same grenades. And they can fight for themselves. You know? So the squad is out. They mm. see those, you know, like the monster shapes. And they mm. try to turn them into Darwinians. Yeah. Okay. And that was how the game worked. So at the start of the game, you would, you would control your squad directly and go and fight that virus. And kill a load of virus and clear an area out of the virus. And there would be a load of little floating red Darwinian souls just floating around. Um, and then you could summon, 
you could summon um, different programs to run for you. Again, there's some similarity with the, the verbs that we use to describe what you do as an uplink. Mm-hmm. And the, so you could summon these engineers, and they look like the they look like the collectors from Tron. If right. you remember that movie. Mm-hmm. So what is the victory? So the victory condition is ultimately to clear out the virus completely from the world of Darwinia. Does it get yeah. harder? Like yeah. So it was a it was a level based game. It had ten levels, and they were they were handmade uh, levels. Um, you know, it's one of the few games we've made that that didn't have a, a completely random world. Right. Did you consider uh, doing that? Like I would assume I you might would have started with so. that. But well, no. we sort of we sort of did. Like the landscapes weren't modelled. Again, we didn't have any. 3D modeling skill, right? <laughs> so um, we ended up writing a, a kind of a landscape generator that you would recognize now as similar to the algorithm that drives Minecraft's um, landscapes, okay. like a noise generation function turned into a height map right. um, with a lot of graphical styling turned on it. So we, we found a way to make art assets without actually having to model any art assets, but we never found a way to do it procedurally right. you know, that would have been any good. And there was, there was, there was a quite a distinct story for the Darwinians to go on as well. They had to start out as this kind of um, defenseless life form that had only just reached sentience and they were already facing extinction. Um, and, and then they had to go on this journey where by the end of the game, that not only have they learned to defend themselves, but they've also kind of split into two types of Darwinians and they've ended up fighting each other. And it's it's almost like they're their awakening of their mind has, has also brought about a disagreement in them as well, and they've become two separate species now, and they're going to fight each other. Um, and the end up, it ends up being like this quasi-spiritual story about them communicating with the person that created them, mm-hmm. you know, their god creator and programmer, who is like this, um, essentially, Sir Clive Sinclair, the okay. inventor of the Sinclair Spectrum yeah. that I had when I was a kid. As like this real nerdy British um, scientist and engineer, mm-hmm. um, and he is essentially um, this character in this game that invents these digital world and doesn't really know what's happening. Right, and you're just there to assist him clearing out this virus. You yeah, know? in hindsight, some pretty quirky <laughs> yeah. thematic stuff going on there. You yeah, know? I mean, do you, could you define? Could you explain maybe like why you decided to do it that way? Not really. <laughs> Not really, no. I think that the Dar- I, want, I knew, I've realized that as the more the Darwinians felt alive and ran away from danger and kind of screamed if there was a grenade nearby and stuff like that, the, the more engaged you were with protecting them right. and the more you felt like you were helping them. Um, and then this biblical story that built up around them, um, this sort of spiritual journey that they were all going on, just was just something that was really interesting to me, you know? Because they, those little digital souls that they leave behind, if you don't collect them in time, if, if you've got like 30 seconds to collect them, and if you don't manage it, they just float away to like Darwinian heaven. Right. And Darwinian heaven was like the sorting algorithm that was up in the sky. <laughs> and all these souls were up there sorting into order based on how successful they'd been in life. And then the most successful Darwinians would get sent back down. And it became the storyline for one of the later levels of the game. There's, the, there's this later level in the game where you have all their souls coming down for the first time to this point on the ground where they're reborn into more Darwinians and they get another chance to live again. And the, so you know, in your game, God exists. Exactly. Well, yeah. he really does. And not only does he exist, but like the, 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 metaphysics of, <laughs> the metaphysics of how they evolved and grew and also have this like deeply felt spiritual belief in their God creator 
it's all kind of encoded in the mechanics of the game world, kind isn't it? Positive, optimistic. Yeah, absolutely. And it was how they'd how they'd achieved sentience. It's how they'd grown and um, as a species, you know, and that, and um, yeah, and they it's all kind of it, so the, the theme of the game and the mechanics of the game kind of fitted together, you know, right. and that's what I think worked really well. Yeah. About it. Yeah, it's sometimes those things work against each other. So. Yeah. Like if they work together, it's always... Side note, just completely. Were you at all thinking about, like, where we are, who we are on Earth? Is there a God? Is there not a God? Like, was that happening? Or just, like, the game happened organically and it wasn't, like, really... It wasn't a, it wasn't a spiritual journey for me okay. <laughs> in the same way. It was, it was like, it's what an, what, what an INTJ would come up with when they were thinking about a, a, a metaphysics right. simulation system for the process of evolution. <laughs> it's a combination of Buddhist reincarnation and, um, and, uh, and Darwinian evolution, literally Darwinian evolution, yeah, yeah. Um, through the sorting algorithm and survival of the fittest and all of that, right. um, combined with a sort of worship of a, of a, of a deity, you know, monotheism, like all, all blended into one <laughs> in like this completely... Uh, and it was, and it was a, it was a bloody nightmare to describe <laughs> to journalists. <laughs> you know, we'd sit down with these journalists, you know, Try it out. and they just it out. No, well, I've, that's what I've been doing for the last half hour. This is, <laughs> right, this is roughly how it went. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, and they'd just been playing Tomb Raider or something, you know, and, right. then, and then we would sit down, <laughs> yeah. and we'd say, so there's this guy called Doctor Sepulveda. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, how was yeah. the how was the release process different for like Darwinia? Um, like, did was, you? It was it was sort of similar. Um, we knew it was going to be a download this mm -hmm. time as well, um, as well as a disc. Um, and we went back to the same bunch of journalists as well because we were kind of friends with them. Um, and we did a whole demo day um, in in Bath, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> where we took the game along, an early earlier version of the game, and we showed it to them. Um, um, spent ages talking to them about the game, um, and. Although Uplink had gone down very well with them, and we'd had various reviews of Uplink that were great, and it had scored very well, uh, Darwinia just blew their minds. It blew their minds. Right? We had, we, they, they told us that we were going to get a six-page review, and it was going to be like 90%, and it was going to be like their strongest recommendation. You know? And the, the review was, was all about how they just hadn't seen anything like this. You know, this was like the craziest shit they'd ever seen. You know, um, and it was on the cover disc as well. There's demos on the cover disc, um, and it's like, oh my god, oh my god, right? and it kind of bombed. Right? That's the thing. After all of that, we were, it kind of bombed commercially speaking. You know, it just didn't really sell. It did sell a bit, but we had Uplink in our minds, and we had we thought this is going to be like Uplink, but ten times more. You know. Um, but you know, just as we'd had trouble describing it to the journalists, sure. they had trouble describing it in their write-ups as right. well. Um, and it was this very quirky game, um, and, it, and it didn't really, it didn't do itself any favors. Um, by it, it didn't really help you at the start of the game at all. It was just kind of up to you to explore and try stuff out. It didn't tell you that your ultimate mission was to build a Darwinian army and and, and cleanse the place of this virus or anything like that. Yeah. You know, it revealed itself slowly. Yeah, I mean, you sell Uplink to a player, you just say, you're a hacker. Yeah, that's like right. Like, you're done, three words, right? Yeah. Um, 
I think for Darwinia for a while, we used to say a digital dreamscape, right. which means cockle. <laughs> <laughs> all right, but it was kind of thematically relevant. And yeah, we, just, yeah, yeah. We, we were into all that art stuff. And we were, the screenshots didn't make any sense either. They were pictures of fractal landscapes with weird pixelated monsters. You know? yeah. So where were tutorials back then? Yeah. Good question. <laughs> yeah, not in Darwinia. That's for sure. <laughs> no, and I think actually the Darwinia demo even had pretty much zero onboarding. Oh. The Darwinia demo, the first demo we made was like level three from the game without anything. It right. was just like, there you go. And, um, uh, it, and it didn't even tell you how to summon your first unit. You had to hold down the alt key. Okay. <laughs> I can hear Mark laughing at this point. <laughs> Did it say somewhere, hold the old key? Because, right, because you had a task manager uh, in-game. Oh, sure. And to access the task manager, you pressed Alt-Tab, uh -huh. right, and you could cycle through all of your different programs that you were running. Uh -huh. So when you held down the Alt key, you got a list of all your programs, and you could create more. And the first version of the game, you summoned, uh, you summoned using like a gesture recognition system, mm -hmm. um, which was kind of because I was obsessed with black and white. That Peter Molyneux game yep, sure. from, from ancient times. Mm -hmm. And that had a really mad gesture recognition yeah, system in it. Did. Um, so you had to hold down the Alt key and then you had to draw a triangle. Yeah. And you had to draw quite a specific triangle yeah. <laughs> as well. And then if it recognized it, you would get your first cannon fodder squad. Uh -huh. right? And then you could start playing the game. But there wasn't very much help to get you through that. And there was nothing to su suggest that there was any bigger story going on. Um, and visually, it looked like Tron, the movie. Yeah. Um, now, to me, Tron and War Games are like my two golden era childhood movies. Sure, yeah. Um, side by side with Star Wars and all of that stuff. Yeah, Tron for um, me, absolutely. Like, yeah. Right. But Tron was also a, a critical failure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Partly because of how weird it looked. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, we were, we were really picking the influences there to yeah, maximize yeah, yeah. our chances of no one liking it. Um, I do remember that playing Darwinia, the thing that kind of stuck out was that, like, you know, a lot of games were trying to look a certain way because people wanted to recreate a movie or they wanted to create a landscape or recreate this or this. And it felt like this was a game where you were, you were making, a, you were doing what you could with what computers could do at the time, mm. right? Like, it was, it was, um, so I don't know the right way to describe it, but, you know, it, it felt very true to the era. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely, and I think um, I remember it being I remember it being quite a quite a, um, quite a difficult time actually. Sure. Because um, we'd spent three years making this yeah, game. Actually, of course. we'd spent three years, um, and we'd completely run out of money by this point. Yeah. You know, all Uplink had long since stopped selling in significant numbers, um, and we didn't really have any reserves. Or anything like that, and and I think you know I think Tom had to sell a lot of stuff that he owned to raise <laughs> money just to pay the rent. Wow, you know, um, yeah. and there was nothing you can do, like nothing you can sell to patch something, create some understanding of what the mission is. Yeah, a few things. So we we we, we recognized that this had happened, um, and um, we made a new demo, which was much better. So I, I made a custom demo that was actually a prequel. <laughs> okay. And it was kind of weird. It actually had this, it had part of the storyline. 
it's, it's hard to describe. At the time, I thought it was a very clever idea, but the demo was actually kind of a story sequel to the game. Right. <laughs> but it was designed to be something that you would play first. Right before it, yeah. In, in the way that now a movie might show you a scene from near the end of the story, and then it would say, like, you know, one month earlier or something oh, like that. Oh, I see. That was the idea I was riffing on. Because I wanted... The early parts of the game are very sterile, and I wanted to get that Darwinian on Darwinian warfare into the game, and I wanted to have this everything turned up to 11 for, for this little half-hour demo experience. Mm -hmm. And then you would go back to the beginning, you know, and maybe you would have a feeling of how much bigger this game really was. Um, so I made a much better demo, and it had, it had a, a tutorial. <laughs> it had a really good tutorial built into it. Um, and um, we put that out on the internet. Um, and then we had the IGF. Right? Mm -hmm. So it had been nominated for the IGF, um, so this is now 2006, um, and Darwinia won the IGF Grand Prize that year, right. um, and it won the Technical Excellence Prize, and it won the Innovation in Visual Art Prize mm -hmm. as well. Um, and so that's kind of like still like one of the biggest nights in our lives, sure. Because we'd come over to some, we'd come over to to the West Coast and. For the first time, yep. we'd never been to GDC before. Um, and we didn't know if we were going to get anything, if we were going to win anything. Um, and a load of people saw the game then. So we were, on the, we, were in the, we were in the booths. We had our game set up. And we had, yep. people, we had loads of people playing it who were all kinds of different... Um, I was about to say influencers, but that wasn't a word <laughs> that anybody said then. Right. But we, <laughs> um, loads of people played it. Um, and, um, and then we had just had this epic night. You know, so we we all we decided because we're British, we're all, we're going to go in dinner jackets. We're going to go in full. <laughs> <laughs> that I remember time, that. Now, you know? now, now I actually I think I remember the picture of you guys there in, in yeah, your tuxedo. That's right. We went them. we went and found a tuxedo shop. Yeah. Literally, the I think it was the morning of the show. Yeah. You know? <laughs> we just walked into this place and said. And this is an unusual request, but can we can we rent four tuxedos <laughs> now? I mean, like, and he was looking, at his, going through his calendar, going like, yeah, yeah. I've got some time uh, next month, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, so we so we were all there. And and I should say that in contrast, if you think the game developers are fairly underdressed now, you should have seen what they were back in two thousand six, so yeah. or whatever it was. So you, uh, so you stood out, and that was the intention. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely the intention. Um, marketing. <laughs> you, you could say, cynically, you could say, "Oh yeah, it was a marketing ploy," but I think partly we were just a bit batshit yeah. about it all. You know, it's yeah. just like this is what we're going to do. It's going to be different. You know, um, and then we, so we won the two um, warm-up prizes. Um, oh, that's very derogatory. I don't mean that at all. We won the two <laughs> the first prizes. earlier prizes yeah, yeah. out of the awards sequence. And then, and then when they announced the grand prize one, it's like, oh, my God, you know, you're absolutely kidding. And then so we all went running up on stage. Um, yeah, and it's just it, and, and it just it felt like a real moment when um, the game had kind of taken a step further, mm -hmm. you know, um, and we celebrated like crazy. And at the same time as all of that, you know, all at the same time, um, I think it was the same time, Valve were working on putting non-Steam games oh, okay. onto Steam yeah. as well. Yep. So it had been, you know, Steam had been, Steam was the Half-Life yep. auto-patch system. Delivery device. Originally. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's all it was. Um, and then they had that game Ragdoll Kung Fu. Yep. But they were all here, you know. Valve mm -hmm. were here in force. Um, 
and um, we'd met them, and I think we'd been out for dinner with them, um, and we'd you know we'd met loads of them. I think we I think we'd even gone to their office as part of the same trip, um, and they were talking about you know maybe maybe we'll start selling non-Steam games. Yeah. You know, on Steam. And this is kind of a revolutionary concept. Yeah. A fateful moment. Yeah, and we genuinely had a lot of discussions about that, you know, about do we want to, you know, eat into our revenue by selling it <laughs> through another platform and stuff. <laughs> Which in hindsight, guess, thank goodness. I guess you made the right you know, choice. <laughs> we totally made the right choice. Yeah. Um and I think then there were guys from Microsoft there as well. Uh-huh. It was early days of Xbox Live Arcade. Yep. It hadn't it wasn't called it didn't exist and it didn't have that name. Yeah. But they were looking for um, for the first time ever, they were looking for tiny little quirky yeah. indie games. You yeah. know, that's and when they had that weird arbitrary limit of a game could only be fifty megabytes yeah, or whatever. Right. Yeah, that's right. And they and but they, you know, when they designed the the Xbox 360, some 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 people at Microsoft had conceived of an entire part of that storefront that would be devoted to yep. small creative games. Yep. And they were there. They were there at the pavilion. You know, going around playing all the IGF nominee games. And I think a whole bunch of them was swept up that year. Sure, yeah. Including Darwinia. Yeah. And certainly Braid was there, I remember. Yeah. Um, and a bunch of others. Um, yeah. I mean, it was a great decision because it, it allowed a place for those type of games, right? Mm. Like, to me, that's actually what stands out from this era is that for, for the, the, that, the first part of that decade, it felt like there could only be one type of game made. At least mm. that could be sold in store. It had to be a certain length. It had that's to right. have a certain weight, it, you know. And so that meant that a whole bunch of types of games can never get made because like, oh, this one's short or oh, this one's weird or yeah, it's replayable right. in an odd way or, or whatever. And, you know, if they actually devoted part of their store just to games that mm. could be small, it just completely changed what the, the market, or yeah. what, you know, what type of games could be made. So, and I, think they, and I think that they still thought that it would just be some tiny little rounding error on the, right. <laughs> on the accounts, you know. Yeah. And I don't think they ever envisaged that they'd be buying Minecraft for... Three three billion dollars yep. less than ten years later, right? Yep. I mean, that's literally the growth trajectory of that industry. Yeah, um, yeah. I remember having a weird experience of just like having the three hundred and sixty there, and I would just keep playing Geometry Wars over and over again. That's right. And my discs yeah. would just sit there, there unplayed, you know. And I, don't, mm. I didn't know why. It was like it's like I had forgotten what arcade arcade games felt like. Yeah. Right. Because you know, a big budget AAA game couldn't be that. It couldn't be that responsive. Right. It couldn't be that. You know, like that. I don't know what they were taught, basically, right? Yeah. Well, we've we've honestly felt like we were the only people doing it for a while. Certainly in the Uplink and Darwinia days. Right. So a bit arrogantly, admittedly, we were in our early twenties, so we were definitely a little bit more arrogant then about you know that we're the only people doing this in the whole world. You know, all that well, last last of the bedroom programmers business. You were to some extent because yeah. there was just no market existed. There was no path to a consumer, so you yeah. couldn't survive as a business. Well, that's like when that. we kind of had to make it. You know, that's yeah. that's the whole making your own sales system. Yeah. Um, but you know, this is so. This is kind of to me. This is the turning point. Yeah, sure. Um, because this is the point when Valve got in the game and Microsoft got in the game, and um, and created that, um, you know, that place where it, it could happen. Um, you know, and this whole new. It's not. It's not even a genre, is it? I mean, it's every genre, but it's the whole new corner of the market. You know, which is in many ways the most interesting corner of the market. Just sprung up from there, and so. Darwinia went out on Steam, and it was it was the second ever non non Valve game. Right. Um, and I think we, we just had like a month's worth of front page promotion on on Steam because oh, there was nothing else. It was just <laughs> the way the things are now. Thinking about that, it's just it. like yeah. you can't imagine insane. it. Yeah. yeah, it was a gift. It really was. Um, yeah. 
and it just that then it finally found its audience yeah. right finally it started to sell in good numbers um and you know we, it, it was no longer a kind of weak sibling of uplink on the sales front you know right. um and then um how quickly did it pick up like you had that month long well, immediately like, immediately i mean within within a day we knew and I can't remember the exact numbers, but it, it had outsold every copy we'd sold so far I don't even within know, a very short was, period. I think it was dinner jackets. It could have been the dinner jackets. <laughs> it could have been the dinner jackets. Yeah, it could have been. <laughs> maybe. Maybe Steve. I think there was a, there was a slightly incendiary uh, speech from a certain Mark Morris given as well <laughs> okay. when we were wearing those dinner jackets. We went on stage and, um, and Mark said, um, we've been working on this game for three years, Star One Year, and we've compl we'd completely run out of money. Um, but despite that, we did not take any money from publishers because we did not want any publishers fucking up our game. Okay. <laughs> and it just came out, right? And I just remember looking over at him and just going like... Oh. <laughs> but it was like a well, stake like in the quint ground. Quintessential yeah. indie statement. Yeah, so. it, it was. It was a real like revolutionary stake in the ground of like, this is what separates us, you know, from all of that, you know, and it's like an authenticity, I guess, yeah, you know, sure. to it. Had you actually um, been thinking about taking money from publishers or was that more I, I, a theoretical probably, concept? Yeah, well, we, we were talking to Microsoft at the time. We were talking to Valve at the time. You know, we weren't doing it for charity. Sure, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Know, It was all ultimately with the purpose of selling. But it, was, but it was from a position of authenticity. It was from a position of like, this is a game that we have made without any real involvement um, from, you know, any external companies, you know. And to this day, we've we've never done a funded game. You know, yeah. it's always been something in the way that we like to create stuff. Yeah. You know, it's going to be ours. We're going to make the game we want to make, and and then release it. Um, and then and then that's how we that's how we square it off. The deals occur when we've made the game, and that's when we try and try and make it sell as best as we can. You know? So now that Steam and the game, are, you know, the game was on Steam and it was doing very very well. Mm. What what were the next steps? Well, um, to, uh, a couple of things in parallel. So we we, we started the third game, um, which was DefCon. Uh -huh. um, so um, so that come about. So towards the end of Darwinia, after three years, I'd started to get kind of sick of Darwinia. Sure. Actually, I'd started to have quite serious burnout on that project. Um, you know, because it's a long time to work on a game. Sure. Um, yeah. And. Um, and I'd watched War Games <laughs> again, <laughs> again yeah. because it's a reliable source. I watch it and I get this little warm feeling rising up in my chest and I feel inspired and I feel like a kid again. And I'd already gotten uplink out of War Games and, um, and I just loved the whole nuclear war Armageddon thing on abstract screen. Because you know, if you remember the movie, <coughs> excuse me. If you remember the movie, they're in a bunker, they're in NORAD at the end. Uh -huh. um, and there's a simulation of nuclear warfare occurring on all these projectors. And it's real vectorized, it's vector lines. Yep. Yep. And there's all these nukes are just going, America and Russia are just nuking each other over and over again. China's nuking everyone, America's nuking everyone. It's a simulation, but it looks great. Um, and I just thought that uh, that's a video game waiting to be made, you know? That's right there, you know, global thermonuclear war. Right. The video game. Right. <laughs> you know, there are, there are some... There are Troubling some, implications. There are some yeah. dark themes. To, there are dark themes to the games that, that we come up with. 
Yeah. And when I say we, I mean I. Right. Um, and, I, uh, and I thought, I just, maybe this is jumping ahead, but I thought like what really made that work was the audio design for the game. Of course. Of like, course. That was, part was amazing. Yeah, well, that's Alistair Lindsay. Now, he's, he's a friend of mine, and he's done our audio ever since Darwinia. Yeah. Every game we've ever made, um, except for Uplink. Mm-hmm. Um, he was there right, right from really early days. Um, he's just a masterful audio designer. Um, so I made this tech demo, um, and I had a Daggio for strings playing, essentially, because mm-hmm. my thinking was that it is going to be this horrendous nuclear war game, but I'm not pro-nuclear world or anything like that. You mm-hmm. know? To me, this is, a, a, to me, this is, like, I'm, this is going to be highlighting the utter insanity yep. of nuclear war. This is going to be like some Doctor Strange love level. Yep bordering on satire right you know video games are unique right this is the, this is the only medium where we can say go ahead right win a nuclear war and see how you, feel, how you feel when you right. stare at the map <laughs> like i won yeah quote i won all right and you look at the list of uh, how many hundreds of millions of casualties you've racked up along the way um you know and that, that so the demo kind of didn't have that but it had the world map and it had it had the sad music um, it was very much designed to to evoke a feeling of utter tragedy, but you were still desperately trying to win this nuclear war, um, and um, yeah, and so um, that that was the project that I was working on next for a good additional year uh, after Darwinia. Um, and so there's emptiness, that sad music. If you're in a nuclear war, you might as well win it. Yeah. Right? That's right. Yeah. And I also the, want to add, like, for the sound design, there's all this, like, sort of, like, coughing and mm-hmm. very, like, just odd kind of side sounds where that you wouldn't mm-hmm. normally hear in a video game where it's suggesting stuff that's happening in the world mm-hmm. because the, you know, the, the visual design is super sparse, right? It's just, it's just green, you know, green and red lines, basically, right? Um, so the only thing that gives you a sense of what's actually happening is those small little audio cues, which are really very subtle, Mm. But they really create that mood, right? Yeah, it was like a feeling. It was the idea that you're in a you you're in NORAD. Yeah, you're in the bunker, and this is the screen. That this is the computer console. This is the screen by which you are guiding this nuclear war. And because of that, you're able to click on um, enemy cities, right. right, and issue a nuclear launch order because it's so abstract. And the numbers just flash up on the screen. You know, city hit five million dead. Right. right, and then your score goes up by five, <laughs> because the scoring mechanism was all about mega deaths. Yeah, you know, and and it's just this incredibly dark concept, and then um, and then you lose points for losing your own civilian populations. So you know the mechanics of that game, essentially an extended paper scissors stone. Yeah, where you kind of have to leave yourself very vulnerable to launch a nuclear attack, um, but it's the only way that you can win. And you know there's going to be a nuclear attack in return as well. You know it's going to escalate. Um, and so how do you strategize your win? Well, you, um, you have nuclear submarines that are indetectable. And so part of the aim of them is to sneak them up until they're in just the right position. And the t- getting the timing just right when your strike hits is a, like a critical part of the game. Um, you also have conventional naval fleets that are battling it out. The game occurs in stages, so you have like a DEFCON 3 stage where uh, all the fleets in the Atlantic Ocean start battling each other for dominance and control of the location. Um, and then it goes to DEFCON 2 and you start getting to an additional level of, of uh, conflict. And then finally when it reaches DEFCON 1, you're able to launch your nuclear weapons. 
and it's very much a game of outsmarting and, and outtiming your enemy. Um, the def uh, the defcon progression is mm. really distinct, like for yeah. the game. Like most game, I've, it's not something you typically see in games. Is that was that always there? It was. Yes, it's and it always and it always counts down on a fixed timer. Right. Is it because it was a it was a critical part of it that the the defcon timer is something that is not really under your control. Like for political reasons, the defcon level is just getting worse and worse, and you're just the NORAD general, and so you don't really have a say over that. We are going to go to defcon one and you're going to have to react right. accordingly. And the only way to destroy the enemy's nuclear silos is to nuke them. And, and um, when they're launching, they're, in, in, they're completely defenseless. Right. Um, and so, um, and they know the same of you as well. And your, your nuclear silos are all hidden until they launch. So you have, you have this game where you're holding a lot of secrets. You know, your submarine locations and your silo locations, they're all hidden. But when you choose to take action, they, you start playing your cards and they reveal themselves and you become a lot more vulnerable. Um, and the scoring mechanism is all based on civilian deaths. And that was really designed to hammer home like the utter insanity of all of this, like the futility of it. Um, yeah. So you have one singular enemy. Uh, it was multiplayer, so you could play, um, you could have up to six players actually, always on the world map. And the enemies had also names for the nations? Yeah, they did. And so it didn't quite make geographical sense with six different players, because it would just kind of give you a continent to start with. Um, it made more sense when you teamed up. So because you could, also, you could also play in team games, and you could form alliances and things. So two or three players could, could team up, and, um, and their forces would become uh, non-hostile with each other. And they would share radar data. Right. Um, but everyone was still scored individually um, and there was still only ever one winner an alliance never won only one country only one player would ever win and you could end an alliance at any moment and so when it was being played multiplayer you had these you had that paranoia again <laughs> you had that feeling because you're sharing your radar data with these other people and they know where all your silos are now and they know where all your nuclear submarines are um, and it was perfectly within the rules of the game for you to um, end the alliance and, and sneak attack and nuke your former allies and gain all the points from attacking them um, and thereby catapult yourself up at the leaderboard into the winning position. Um, and I, I, it, was, it was a deliberate attempt, again, to create a feeling that this alliance is not a friendly alliance. Right. It's, it, because it, in, this new, in this global thermonuclear war, everybody is looking out for themselves and terrified of um, of um, being betrayed, mm. and because you're so scared of being betrayed, you'll betray them first. Right. You know? <laughs> and I, I, for you're... some reason, I liked that element that the game brought out. Right. Um, I liked the way that it forced you to think tactically and strategically about that. Yeah. But Good. also, kind of in a really sociopathic way. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, psychology is a gameplay. A lot of. That's um... right. Yeah, it's a prisoner's dilemma, isn't it? It's yeah. called. A lot of. Need uh... them first. A lot of uh, the the board game diplomacy um, mm. in tournament play, they they often have rules that allow alliance victories, mm -hmm. and it's it's kind of a you know it's a point that gets debated like whether you should whether you should have that or not, right? But but like you know by not allowing that, you know you're basically mm. you know you're forcing everyone to <laughs> you're making it a trust game, yeah, and you're making it so that the trust can only go so far, yeah. Um, How long was the game in multiplayer? So it would, it would take sort of 45 minutes to play a full game. 
Yeah, um, we had a we had a special mode that was called can I call it office mode or something like that, where the game would play out in real time. <laughs> so you could just run it, you could run it in the background, and the game would minimize down to your taskbar, and it would take it take about eight hours for a full global thermonuclear war to play right. out, and the missiles would all travel at legitimate real world speeds, and so you could launch your missiles at enemy continent and know it's going to take a couple of hours for them to get there or something. <laughs> you could go and have lunch, yeah. And in the meantime, you'd maybe a, a, a submarine fleet would spring up yeah. off your coast and start attacking. You could never get away from that feeling that you weren't safe and that you were going to be attacked at any moment. Because I wanted to create that, you know, you know, in the Doctor Strangelove concept, that the person that's in the NORAD bunker, you know, there, there is something of a screw loose in, in their head that they're engaging in this, in this warfare. Um, and that you know that utter paranoia that your that your even your friends could betray you at any moment is something that I really wanted to be in the game because I thought that that was that was probably how a nuclear war would have occurred in the first place, right. you know, by just some horrendous trust failure. And they used to talk about preemptive nuclear strikes, didn't they? They used to yeah. talk about like, right. you know, even though it's peacetime, yeah. we need to nuke them. Yeah. <laughs> because or the it's the only way to stop ourselves from being nuked. Yeah, or the concept concept of like the dead hand, right? Yeah. That like if if they don't hear for a certain period of time, they're going to assume nuclear war has happened, so they're going to launch their weapons yeah, automatically. Right. And it's a lot of really crazy. yeah, that's right. Yeah, they used to have the submarines operated that way, didn't yep. they? If they didn't hear from home base, yeah. And War Games itself was a cautionary tale that connected it to early computer hacking as well. It was the idea that if you're reliant on a computing system. Um, to run your defense, the, the software glitch could lead to nuclear Armageddon, yep. which was a very common theme in the 80s. I think there's this fear of yeah. of computers and also nuclear apocalypse. Yeah. Now you go ahead. No, I just uh, on the on the website of Introversion, do you have like uh, a recommended list of psychiatrists and uh, refills for your anxiety pills? <laughs> <laughs> we don't, <laughs> but maybe we should. <laughs> Mind you, these are the types of games I love to play. Like. Uh, yeah, mm. I just. So you're you're essentially you're making an RTS. Oh, right. It is at its core a real-time strategy game, absolutely. And it's it, there are only nine units in the game. Right. Um, you know there are three air units and three ground units and three naval units. Right. And you know and I can I can draw the diagram that shows that this is paper scissors stone in all but name. Right. Um, with them all crossing over and every unit is dominant in one position and is useless in another. Yeah. Um, and that's what makes it. People still play Defcon now. Right. People still debate the tactics of how to win. Yeah. When we when we released the game, um, we didn't know the best strategies. We weren't sure. Sure. Um, but we knew the game was open enough to let people try things, and we saw players develop strategies that we'd never considered. You know, never yeah. really thought of, which is which is really cool. Yep. That will always happen in multiplayer games, you know. Yeah. Uh, like that's that's kind of a point, really. Human beings are a bit insane. Yeah. Did you adjust the game based off of that? I mean, often that's great. But we didn't, off, we didn't but sometimes adjust, you have to. We didn't adjust the balance. It was it was okay from the start, and it was quite finely balanced. Um, we just fixed a lot of bugs, and there was a lot of. It was our first multiplayer game, sure. so it was an absolute catastrophe on launch. <laughs> you know, we had we experienced total server failure yeah, for, yeah, for yeah. a long while because it was it was that beige box on my bedroom floor again, right. yeah. <laughs> running the DefCon servers. Oh you know. wow! Yeah. So how was the process of testing your games and iterating and reiterating? Um, in that case, um, we we um, we got a lot of people with laptops and uh, put them all together and just got and watched them all play. Um, we actually did a we did an early visit to Valve with DefCon um, in the hopes of getting it onto Steam, 
Um, and they, they had this process that they used to do where they would go and find some random Valve staff member who looked like they weren't busy enough. <laughs> and they would just pick them up and say, you're going to play a new game today. <laughs> and they'd sit them down on the game. They wouldn't even tell them what the game was. Right? And so this, um, this, this Valve artist walked in and sat down. And we'd never met him. They had no idea who we were. And they tried to play Defcon, oh um, you know, single player. Yeah. Um, and I think that they couldn't even get to the point where they could launch missiles or something <laughs> because it was, it was like you had to hold the right mouse button down for three seconds yeah. to change a silo into launch mode. And it was just like a critical user interface failure that we'd made, that we fixed on the plane home. Right. <laughs> you know, and we learned a lot from that. And then we did more and more play tests. We did a lot of multiplayer play tests um, in person. Mm -hmm. um, in order to make sure it was balanced and, and reliable as well. Yeah. It's great to launch a game where like the balance is already right. there. Yeah, there, right? I, mm. like, yeah, I was curious how much multiplayer, you know, how much you guys well, played it internally. Because beforehand. it's because it's based on the paper, scissors, stone concept, right? And and not a, a table of um, strengths and weakness values, right? You know, well, it's, so, yeah, it's I was not asking a linear about... table of of um, of power versus armor. It's uh, you know, paper, scissors, stone will always be balanced. Right. Um, and paper, scissors, stone extends to any odd number of units. <laughs> you know, as long as, as long as every unit is, is utterly devastating in one scenario and is utterly useless in one other scenario and then a mixture, every unit will be required to win the game and every strategy you come up with will be counterable by another strategy. Right. And you see the same thing now in StarCraft and the likes, you know. Even the most powerful units in the game in StarCraft are utterly useless against one enemy unit type. Right. It just destroys them. Um, and, and so that's kind of how, that's how you know academically it, it will be balanced, even if you don't necessarily know quite what the health bar is going to be. Yeah, I was wondering how much you, you know, experience you had with RTS games because you know, it really you know, it didn't appear obvious, but it was clearly one. And mm -hmm. you know, like it kind of stood out to me because I, had been I, I kind of felt like RTS games had gotten really commoditized right mm. like they're really very much the exact same thing and it's like oh here this is a game that like it fits the format but like it's still it's it's very pared down but it's it's still i'm doing something different something i haven't done mm. before yeah well i mean i, I can actually remember playing june 2 on the amiga mm -hmm. um, before anybody knew what an rts was actually right. and june 2 was a sequel to a completely different yeah. it was like an adventure <laughs> game june that's 1. a totally weird story but yeah yeah and then for some reason they just invented the real-time strategy genre <laughs> as for june 2 and all the archetypes are there and all the unit types are there and all the base building is there in that game um and yeah i played loads i played loads of games like that and um, i was big into that kind of thing um and um but i just didn't really want defcon to have any of that you know yeah. it, it has really minimal base building at yeah. the start of the game. You kind of place your, you place your silos and submarines, and then that's it. There's no yeah. more base building. I mean, every element of the game has one exact purpose. And you, you don't have any mm. two units that do kind of... They're kind of similar, right? Like, mm. everything is very... Everything has a different use, and yeah. they're all required. Yeah, and, they're, and if you make a mistake, um, every unit you have can be decimated. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, so, you know, the classic's been the submarines... You know, the submarines come to the surface ready to nuke San Francisco or whatever. Yep. And, oh, there's, a, there's three enemy battleships right there. Yep, and yep. you're just sunk before you can even launch a single nuclear weapon. And that might have been the crux of your entire strategy. Yep. You know, but you, the submarines can't tell the battleships are there because as soon as the submarines use their sonar, they give away their location. Yep. And so, you ha again, you have that card-playing feel of, like, you know, we can't check it's safe to surface 
because as soon as we do, the enemy will be alerted to our presence. So we, we always have to risk, take a bit of risk. Yep. And I think in, in hindsight, I think that, like you were saying, that the sound and everything and the, the atmosphere of it, I, I, actually, I actually drain all the color from the game as well, mm-hmm, sure. based on the fraction of humans that are dead. <laughs> yep. So, um, But if you, can, if you can reach sort of 90% human death by the end of the game, which is totally doable, yeah. Um, yeah. The map is grayscale by that point. Yeah. And the music has a pitch shift on it as well. And so um and that's attached to deaths as well. So you have what is already pretty sad music and it just kind of goes yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it just becomes this long drawn out um soundscape behind you. Yeah, yeah. Um and all the colors gone and the world starts glowing green where all the biggest impacts have occurred. Yeah. Um and it's just brutally depressing, <laughs> and as it should be. And there was uh, somebody did. Um, I think it was a PhD study or something, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, Mark doesn't know what I'm talking about. There was a study done of um, of DEFCON and its effects on people's opinion of nuclear war. Okay. And yeah. um, and they they. Yeah, took... I'm curious about this because there is this kind of weird aspect of like there's still a multiplayer community, right? There is. And like. You know, I can imagine at some point being worried they're having too much fun playing Defcon. Well, you know, <laughs> so anyway, but that's continue. what that's what video games are so good at, yeah, though, right? Yeah. Because they no other medium can can put you in that in the shoes of like fair enough, you can have fun playing a nuclear game and winning, but you're going to feel differently by the end. Yep. Doesn't mean you'll stop playing the game because it's still fun. But they so they 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 took a lot of um, volunteers and. They made half of them watch a documentary about nuclear war that was mm. all about uh, radiation sickness and yep. and where to go in the event of a nuclear war and things and and then the other half played Defcon. <laughs> okay. Yep. And then afterward, they were all they all had to fill out a questionnaire about um, what do you feel about our nuclear deterrent? You know, what do you feel about our stance on mutually assured destruction? You know, do you feel it's appropriate to respond with nuclear weapons in this scenario? And the people that had played DEFCON were far more anti-nuclear war hmm. um, than the people that had watched the documentary. Right. You know, and That's I, interesting. And I love that because yeah. it's like they, they're taken away from the game. Yep. Um, this is not, there's no, there's absolutely no victory to be had in this video game. Yeah. You know, there's only numerical victory um, and the hollow feeling that you've ended humanity, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Nothing yeah. makes you think through something like playing an active role in it. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And because you because you you're the player, so you're complicit. Yeah. As well, I think that's yeah. one of the video game's strengths. You know, that Brian, we, we we played on that in Prison Architect. Later, we made you complicit in something which is which is sociologically uncomfortable. Right. You know, and then um, by making you do it, it's it makes you think about it. You know, I mean, when you're not playing the game, maybe you think about right. Oh my God, that that really happens. Yep. You know, that's a that's a possibility. You know. Yep. In the in the Cuban Missile Crisis, Russia had had devolved launch um, the devolved launch responsibility to commanders that were in Cuba, yeah. saying, you know, you may you can launch your nuclear missiles yeah. if you're attacked without having to phone Moscow first, you know, as a brinksmanship trick, you know, as a, and then they told the Americans this <laughs> <laughs> to say, you know, if you invade. Right. Who knows yeah, what's going to happen? You yeah. will be nuked, and we yeah. can't stop it. Yeah. You know? And they won't invade it. So, in that sense, it was successful. Right. Um, but that that nuclear brinksmanship stuff was so insane, and you know, it, it was it was one of those moments when I was thinking of the game, where I kind of I had the excitement rising up in me. I've just watched war games, and I've had this theme, and I can see the game, and it's like, why has nobody done this? 
mm-hmm. you know this is such an obvious brilliant game that I'd love to play you know um, multiplayer global thermonuclear war <laughs> <laughs> you know and it's got and it's such a rich topic as right. well you know you know and I think that's that to me that's that's sort of like a sign it's a sign that it's um, going to be a good a good game yeah and, ha- and having it actually have a good impact on people who play it is just really good yeah, you're not contributing in the noise and the violence. Yeah, you're not making it. Uh, you're not making it into some silly, um, you know, victory music type thing. You know. So I'm interested in like you said that with the music and and the sadness and the emptiness and the grayscaling and so once you win, mm. what happens to you? Like go up to the surface and then you just feel the impact of everything. Nothing happens. Nothing. The game ends. <laughs> the game, the game recognizes that you that the players have all had played their cards now, and the, and and something called a victory timer starts, which is just like this timer to the end of the game, and that's how long you have to finish up, and then the scores are told up, and whoever gets the highest score is declared the winner, and it just the sounds all stop, and mm-hmm. uh, the music stops. It gives you a score, but it also shows you, forty nine million people died. Yeah. You killed forty nine million people, and you lost. 37 million people, right? That's right. Congratulations. Like, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> you won. Yep. I mean, occasionally people do, it is possible, obviously, it's possible to utterly dominate your opponent and win by, you know, by nuking them before they can get their nukes launched um, and also destroying their fleets before they can launch. And so you can dominate the enemy. Um, but it, it, but once they, but then, then they learn. And then at that point, you realize that. Um, mm-hmm. Any game like that is going to end in you know a horrendous outcome. Same moral story as war games, right? Yeah. The only winning move is not to play. Yeah. So where did you take Defcon, and how was the reception? Yeah, so Defcon uh, launched on Steam and launched on our website as a download. Um, again, we went to we went to Bath. <laughs> we went to meet our buddies. You know, in the yeah, Br- we went to meet the, the, the envelopes in- this time. That's right. We went to we went to meet the entire British gaming press once again in a pub. Um, in Bath, <laughs> and this time we went dressed as uh, generals. Okay. So <laughs> each right. time we do something a little bit stupid. Yeah, yeah. This time we went dressed as uh, Air Force, uh, Royal Air Force cadets or something, Royal Air Force generals and everything. I think I was dressed as a as a Russian uh, communist leader or something. Nice. <laughs> and um, and we gave them a briefing, and um, and then we had them play it against each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a good feeling then because they were they were getting such delight out of nuking each other. Um, and, and they were just having a really good time, which is a good sign for a video game, I think. Um, yeah, and it reviewed gate, reviewed brilliantly, and it, and it sold really well. It was a really big success. Um, you know, we had we had an immediate successful sales process. We had a total technological failure <laughs> as we were trying to run our own uh, internet server. So the multiplayer games were running on your computer? They were sort of, yeah, sort of. We had we had this thing called the meta server, which is like what you would call matchmaking now. Okay. Um, and a bunch of other stuff that went through a central server of ours. It was completely overwhelmed. Yeah. Um, so we had to do some we had to do some emergency software patching <laughs> yeah. and upgrading of the servers and things. Um, but it carried on taking off, and it yeah it just did really well. It was a big success for us, and it had been developed from start to finish in one year as well. Yeah, um, which was you that's know, great. Yeah. In contrast to the three years of Darwinia, <laughs> was yeah. a very different experience. In contrast to frankly most video games. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes 
sometimes with Uplink and with Defcon right. and Prison Architect, our three biggest selling games, as Mark <laughs> likes to remind me, the idea is actually pretty fully formed in the first 10 right. minutes of me thinking of it. Yeah. You know, and, um, and I just write it down and that's the game that you play in Defcon yeah. is pretty much exactly as it was conceived. Well, sometimes was, the most no. the most important thing for marketing is simply can you explain what game you're making from the very beginning? Yeah, right. That's right. That's right. Because the concept is the concept is held together right from the start. Um, and whereas Darwinia and other games like that, you know, where we had this 18 month process of finding our feet and inventing this story about you know weird Darwinians <laughs> living in a computer, you know, much harder sell, much longer to develop much harder to explain to journalists and ultimately sold far less as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, there's nothing you can draw, you can't draw any conclusion from this because you can't decide to have a fully formed game concept. Sure, yeah, yeah. You're said <laughs> you know, yeah. It's, you're just lucky. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Cool. All right, so what came, uh, what came after DEF CON? All right, yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So, I'm looking at Mark now. <laughs> Things went a bit dark after okay. DEF actually, a bit of a darker period. All right. So, um, the deal with Microsoft had kind of come together. Uh-huh. And so, they were looking for, they were looking, they were still looking to put, you know, uh, big indie games onto Xbox Live Arcade. Right. And we'd done a deal to put Darwinia on Xbox Live Arcade. Right. Um, and I think we started it properly after DEF CON was finished. So you're looking at sort of 2006, okay, uh, maybe 2007, um, and you know, long story short, it didn't come out until 2010. Right. Um, wow. It took us forever to get Darwinia to work on Xbox. Really? Wow. Yeah, because it was well. There's a number of reasons why, but it was it was it was not a technologically. It was a game that was designed to run on PC, mm-hmm. and fundamental to the core of the game as I described it was the control scheme yeah. <laughs> from mm-hmm. cannon fodder um, and um, you know and they also I don't know if you remember back then but uh, Microsoft for Xbox Live Arcade insisted on multiplayer right every game they had really? Uh, yeah it was a hard does, requirement does like Geometry Wars for multiplayer? Yeah, I think it does. It did? It's got oh. some sort of multiplayer element to it. Now, the only... I think they made an exception for Braid. Sure. Right. There must um, be something, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. But so you need... You had, it had quite a lot of um, requirements. Yeah. And so uh, maybe they That's just, a pretty big one. Maybe they just told us <laughs> it needs to be multiplayer. Okay. Yeah. Pretty fucking big. Yeah, one. for sure. And um, and that's that's a dumb choice, frankly, because yeah. like some games it's just not appropriate for. Right. So here was Darwinia, this 10-level... Spiritual, story-driven, arty indie game. Yeah. Um, and uh, they wanted multiplayer. So, well, Darwinia had originally been a multiplayer war game, you know, as I was sure. explaining. Yeah. Um, and um, we just shipped DEFCON, you know, so we had a bit more experience now doing multiplayer. Um, so, you know, we thought we could go for it. And, um, you know, it's you know from a business standpoint, we were also looking to put our games onto different platforms. Sure. Um, and I think we were trying to think about the company in terms of like maybe there's a new game that we're working on and at the same time we're still doing other versions of the old games you know so there's always continuous revenue Mm -hmm. from the old games Um, and so you know it was it was a nightmare doing that project 
Um, yeah. We were beset by all manner of horrendous technological problems. And, um, you know, it's very difficult to work with a company the size of Microsoft yeah. as well. Um, you know, and you know, they were, we had quite a lot of, their quality demands were very stringent. Yeah. You know, very, very stringent indeed. Um, and, you know, in, if I'm being completely honest, Darwinia was quite a sort of janky English sure, right. <laughs> you know, game, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, 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 which was celebrated. <laughs> but, you know, the, the jankiness and Microsoft were not two words that they were happy to be put together on yeah. Xbox Live Arcade. So it had to be perfect. Um, and um, so we, you know, we, we conceived of this whole other game mode that was called Multi-Winnier. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was its code name because um, it was the only terrible name we could think of. That's <laughs> right. Multiplayer Darwinia. Yeah. Um, and it stuck, unfortunately. We never found a better name. Um, and um, and we and you know, it's a long long period, a long period of time. We started running out of money again. Um, we start. We had quite a few programmers around at that point, and we had we had a bit of a mini team, um, and quite a lot of hardware and things. Um, and so we sort of, we decided that we would split the project up and we would release Multi-Winnier as like a standalone upgrade on Steam, mm-hmm. right? And it would be like a, it would be the, the fourth game from Introversion. Mm-hmm. It would be like a full game release, not a sequel. We were like, it's not a sequel. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a whole other game, you know, which is kind of true. Um, and um, so we, you know, we devoted a lot of time to that. And I think that actually came out in 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, but I sort of mention it as it's, it is, it was our next game, but it was kind of, it didn't really come from the same place as the other games. You know, it, it was sort of a spin-off from the, from the Darwinia Plus project. Right. Um, and, um, and it really, really didn't sell at all well. In fact, it sold disastrously badly. Right. Um, it was a total flop. Um, and, you know, it was this, Darwinia was this quirky, quirky, hard to understand, but story-driven, strange, wonderful game when you got into it. And then here we were with, like, Apocalypse Now, with the Darwinia theme. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and it didn't have any of the sort of nuance and subtlety that DEFCON had possibly brought to to war in global thermonuclear war. It was just an outright war game. Um, And... um, and so people that loved Darwinia for what it was didn't even like it. Yeah, that's bad. <laughs> and people that didn't like Darwinia and had never understood Darwinia, well, they didn't even look at it. Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, it was a disaster commercially. Um, so that's 2008. You said yeah. Darwinia came on the Xbox in 2010. Was Ten. it worth it? No. Okay. So then we had another... Uh, so we were, so now that, so that multi-winnier had failed to re- turn around our company finances... And I can remember then we used to have we used to have meetings and we'd look at the cash flow and we usually we typically had about three months to live at right. any point in that two year period we were done in three months time financially um, and we just we just had to do so much um, maneuvering to get through that period um, and I think Mark raised a lot of money from various um, fundraising and government schemes that existed. Um, and we we experimented with doing some work for um, Channel Four at one point, so British television company. Um, and th- and I think we, we we cut a lot of our costs as well. You know, right. we, we had to we had to take a lot of evasive action basically to get Darwinia Plus out the door. Darwinia Plus is what we were calling the Xbox version. Right. Became 
And it was a, it was a combination of both games packaged together, Darwinia and Multiwinia. Right. So and were it, you having to like reduce staff to try to get to this game did out? We actually lay off anyone in that time. I don't think we did. Right. Because we couldn't because the, the technical requirements for Darwinia. Yeah, that's going to say was so big. Yeah, that's what yeah. I was going to assume. Like, that's the issue. You need more staff to, to go make the other all this way. stuff work. Yeah. yeah. And so we ended up, we had an office in London. We had loads of programmers um, there every day. Um, even even testing and certifying a game on the Xbox yeah. cost sort of $40,000, you know? <laughs> Just yeah. this money we didn't have um, anywhere. Um, and it was not something we were ever used to. You know, we'd never done that before. Um, you know, we, we just kind of did our own stuff. Um, and the and the dev, dev kits themselves were a phenomenally expensive investment as well. We needed loads of them to test all the multiplayer right. out. Had Microsoft given you some money, or was this just the opportunity to be on there? They didn't give us any money. They gave us a load of stuff um, on credit. <laughs> okay. If I remember correctly, Mox. Yeah, I don't think we paid for the dev kits. We didn't pay for the dev kits. I don't think we paid for cert. Right, but we did pay for it eventually. We owed it. Yeah, I see. It was a loan. They took it out. Yeah, eventually. it was a loan, and so all the initial um, we, then we had to repay all of that. Um, and and uh, so, so Darwinia Plus became our only hope, actually, of survival. Right. Um, and all along, I was also trying to make Subversion. Mm -hmm. Subversion is a game that we never finished. Yeah. Um, it was this, and it was this. Um, it was supposed to be a sort of uh, Ocean's Eleven heist video game. Right. right, where you would break into buildings, right, um, and you know conduct a high-tech heist, right. You know, as if you're, um, you know, as if you're from those movies, you know. Um, and it, and it was, you know, it was it was had a lot of interesting tech going on in there, um, and it, we never we never we never finished it because we never figured out how to make the game work. Right. But it became like a massive source of um, disagreement between me and Mark, really. Yeah. Because I wanted to work on Subversion, and I thought that that was going to be the next massive hit. Right. Um, new game, you know. And I kind of thought that Darwinia had already, had never been a huge hit, right? And here we were throwing, putting everything into Darwinia again. Um, and, um, and also, we were missing the boat as well. Like, Xbox Live Arcade... Biggest hits were all in the kind of 2008, 2009 right. era. Like Braid yeah. came out, and um, consoles go fast, you know. Yeah, that's right. And there's, uh, what's it called? Uh, Super. Uh, uh, what's it called? Meat Boy. Or? Yeah, Super Meat Boy, and all you know, a stack of brilliant, brilliant games. There was a huge rush. Yep. And it was already started to die down, and we were still not yet releasing Darwinia, which had come out on PC in 2005. Right. You know, and it was starting to look a little bit uh, late. Um, yeah, and it was. I remember it. I just remember it as a really difficult time. I think we tried to do DefCon on DefCon on Nintendo DS. Really? <laughs> wow. Which is about as good a fit as you imagine. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, <laughs> on this tiny little screen, you know, like. <laughs> okay. It's just, it's just like you'll do anything when you need to raise money. You know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and so. Um, Finally finished it, Darwinia Plus, released it, and again, total catastrophic failure commercially. Right. You know, who would have guessed it? In hindsight, I think, you know, it was that's it was destined to be a total failure on Xbox Live Arcade, but we were too late. And uh, you know, we missed maybe if we'd launched it in two thousand and eight, maybe it would have right. done well anyway, because every game then was doing very well. Um, but not by the time we launched. 
Um, and again, multi-winnier had already shown itself to be, nobody was interested in multi-winnier. Right. Um, and Darwinier was just this quirky, weird thing. And um, we came so close to, to closing forever. Uh, so close. I mean, I think that for a little while after Darwinier's launch, Darwinier Plus's launch, it was, it was not even a question that we were going to close. Right. We were obviously going to close. Um, and um, I remember I, I, started apply, I started looking around for jobs really? and stuff. Wow. Yeah, I started searching for local companies to apply to, games companies and stuff. Um, but they wouldn't have me. I actually interviewed somewhere who shall remain nameless, and then they, they declined. <laughs> really? Yeah, they oh, declined. Man. I thought, look, all these games I've made, man. And it's like, wow, uh, really? You're not a good fit in the company. <laughs> yeah, I was actually gonna. I was actually gonna ask earlier, but we kind of skipped by the, the the chance. Like when you were, you know, going to college, and you know, you love Bullfrog, Bullfrog for another, mm-hmm. for example, you know, for example, and probably some other, you know, UK developers. I mean, did you think of just a more traditional path of like, I'm getting a CS yeah. degree, I'm just gonna go that, you know, that was, apply that, for Bullfrog? That was my plan. That at was university. your plan. Yeah, okay. and, um, and then I did that. I applied to all of my favorite British game developers. Um, and my, my top two um, were Frontier and, yep. and Lionhead. Because Bullfrog right. had already oh, gone right. by yep. that point. Sure. Um, and um, I got a job at Frontier. Oh, you so did? So in 2001 okay. to 2002, I was actually working at Frontier. Okay. Um, I'd gone, and, I, and so I... His, How, where his, does that line up in the chronology of Uplink? Was that... Same time. At the same yeah, time. Yeah, same sort of period. Okay. And this will make, it's interesting, it'll make you laugh because I actually went to Frontier to work on Elite Dangerous. <laughs> oh, geez, wow. <laughs> Which is Ooh. like, because they were, it was in, that's what they were talking about back yeah. then. Like, they were saying like, Elite Frontier is our, our game, you yeah. know, that's what we should be doing. But for market reasons, they could never get to the point when they could commit to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just ended up working on some other stuff that wasn't as interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think it was kind of a, bit of a side project and it was it was going on at the same time um yeah so that was then and then and and then so then years later i started looking around again for more jobs um yeah but i mean they were right i wasn't a good fit you know right by this point having been my own boss and and being in control of my own life designing my own games continuously um uh you know they they already had their game to make sure um, that they knew, and they knew what it was and they had their publisher funding and it already it had already been designed yeah you know um, and you've already to some extent you've already fallen off the curve of programmers at that point as well right. you know there are already dedicated programmers who who um, are 10 year veterans of GPU programming yeah you know essentially you're a super generalist that's right yeah that's right. I'll go from everything, from the, the original prototype through to the programmer art, through to the long-term design, through to eventually managing the little miniature team that forms around the game. Yeah. Um, so thankfully, I would say thankfully they declined. <laughs> right. Because um, um, we were bust. Um, and uh, so we, we laid everyone off and we closed the office and we sold all of our hardware um, and um, we had a bunch of really uncomfortable phone calls with people that we owed money to. Wow. Yeah. Um, now, we, now the, the one thing we had is we still had Uplink and Darwinio and Defcon on sale on Steam. On Steam and yeah. it was still generating, you know, decent money, actually. Decent money. Um, so 
you know, we were able to we were able to make deals and say, look, you are going to get this money back that we owe you because we blew everything making Darwinia Plus. Yeah. We just because you you're all in, and when you have to spend another ten grand on a trailer, even though you don't have it, you spend it on credit. Yeah. Um, and so we owed money to people for that reason. Um, but they, to their credit, they all agreed, and we just had the we had sort of a little while. We had all these payment programs in place to repay. Um, the money we owed, and that kind of left the company running, you know, because it was, it was still a functional entity. And now that we'd laid everybody off, and we weren't taking any salary or anything like that, actually, we were no longer hemorrhaging money. Right. Um, and um, yeah, so I'd, you know, I'd, I'd humiliated myself by failing to find employment <laughs> <laughs> in the games industry, and I was starting to really worry. That must have been a, that must what the have, fuck I was going to do for the rest of my life. Yeah, that must have been a hard <laughs> feeling. Like you'd kind of because you could have joined, you know, could have just stayed at Frontier, right? Mm-hmm. And like you know, presumably had an okay career, you know, probably mm-hmm. right. And I was uh, only there for a year. Yeah, and I was yeah, only yeah. like a junior programmer. At sure. Time. Well, you would have led to other things, but instead you chose this very specific path. Yeah. Right. Which is risky. Right. Like for sure. Yeah. Um, and yeah. But I always wanted to make my own games. Yeah. And to be honest, when I interviewed, I think I think that all I talked about was the games I wanted to make. <laughs> <laughs> that is yeah. a bit of a red flag. <laughs> yeah. In, in hindsight. So what I want to yeah. do is I want to take over your company terrible and then right? make my own games. Fucking terrible. <laughs> and uh, yeah. it was I was never going to have an illustrious uh, games industry career, to be honest. Um, for those very reasons, I imagine. So we said thankfully. Yeah. Where did we go next? Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, thankfully, because it, it just set me back. It just tilted me back towards introversion a little bit, you know, because because now we weren't losing money anymore, you know. Actually, we'd reevaluated, and and um, whereas previously the back catalogue income had barely been enough to pay like the taxes <laughs> right. on our office or whatever, it, now suddenly it was like actually that's all right, you know. Right. And that's not too bad. And we're clearing our debts, and and um, and and Mark had gone through a similar process, I think, of like being convinced that it was all over, and but then actually not wanting it to be all over, you know. And the same with the other guys, um, and so a few things happened at once. We kind of we kind of put together a plan to rescue ourselves. Um, we went to all the people that we had relationships with, and we we just said uh, we need to raise we need to raise some capital really quick, um, and so we kind of it was sort of early days of humble bundle, mm-hmm. um, and so we kind of we, we met those guys. We came over. We actually did an entire trip to San Francisco, um, predominantly to do a deal with Humble Bundle, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, because they were doing gangbusters money yeah. in those days mm-hmm. on every bundle. And they were talking about maybe doing a Humble Introversion bundle right. with all of our games in. Um, you know, and they were doing like a million dollars for a bundle, you know, and then they were giving like 10% of it to charity, which was completely unheard of. And then they were giving like huge fractions of it to the developer. Um, and we just we just loved what those guys were doing. You know, it was like such an out there concept to... Give away a bundle of games for whatever you pay, whatever you want, essentially. Yeah. Um, but it led to vast quantities of sales and vast quantities of charitable donations. It's like you've like you've invented <laughs> everything you've invented here is good revenue out yeah. of nothing. Yeah. You know? And you know, and and I think Mark would be the first to admit that if if we thought of this idea of giving it away for free, we would have assumed that not a single person would pay for it. Right. Because why would you? Economics sure. tells you that they would take it for free. Yeah. But the average purchase price was like four dollars or something. 
Right. You know, and some people paid a thousand dollars for a bundle <laughs> because they were so in love with the concept. Yeah. Um, and it led to the mantra "When in doubt, bundle." Right. <laughs> Which we followed for a while. Um, so we did a humble introversion bundle, and I think we did a big Steam bundle as well of all the introversion games. Um, and I think we did a, like a marketing push as well, and we managed to raise a good chunk of money, um, and that got us out of the the death spiral, you know, and that got us out of the disaster zone. Um, and it meant, and we didn't really have we didn't have anybody around them. We didn't, nobody was employed, you know, so we weren't burning any money. We didn't have an office, mm-hmm. um, so. I went back to Subversion, right? um, which is this heist game. Yeah, it's like, now it's time to finally make Subversion, you know, all it can be. Um, and it was, you know, it, I was really struggling. I was really struggling, and um, I couldn't find the game. And, and I'd, I'd done all this tech, brilliant tech, like all this lovely 3D city, mm-hmm. skyscrapers, you know, had all this fancy high-tech heist stuff going on. It looked a bit like DEF CON. It looked like a, a blue wireframe mm-hmm. model of a city. Yeah. Um, very engineering based, you know, um, and um, I went on holiday to California. <laughs> Keeps coming up um, with my wife. And um, when did you get married? <laughs> <laughs> I'm only talking about game stuff. <laughs> How dare you edit out all the things I've said about my wife and beloved family? <laughs> you know, you only want to focus on the business. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I got married in 2009, yeah. and um, <laughs> so um, we were going... So this is right before uh, the Darwinia Plus. No, this is after, this, yeah, that's right, that's right. So we were working on Darwinia Plus at the time, um, when, when all that happened, you know, so it was, it was a tough period. Um, and um, so, yeah, 2010, Darwinia Plus is this total failure, and I, I'm working on Subversion, and Subversion had this level where um, one of your, like your fixer in your heist crew is in jail, right? That's my, that was my story idea. Uh-huh. He's in jail, you've got to bust him out. And so it was going to be some sort of like Semtex, like plastic explosives in a circle, mm-hmm. blow a hole in the wall. You know, your team goes in, you extract your fixer. And it was going to be one of the earliest missions of the game. And so while we were in California, I decided that we would go around Alcatraz. Mm-hmm. Um, as just to get a bit of research, right? A bit of uh, take some pictures, you know, and I would kind of get a feel for what a prison would be like. Um, and um, and I'm just just walking around, and, it, and we were we were really lucky, and we were there on an anniversary event, and there was there were loads of people there who were talking about they were demonstrating um, how the jail doors worked and things. They were demonstrating the mechanics of how they could pull this giant lever and all the jail doors would slam shut and mm-hmm. everything. And they were talking about the uh, daily schedule of the regime that the prisoners would follow. Um, and um, I just had that wonderful flash of inspiration that um, rather, than have a, uh, rather than have this game um, be about busting somebody out from a prison, it would be a lot of fun to make a prison mm-hmm. in a game. <laughs> and... Um, and that leads us neatly on to Prison Architect. <laughs> right. And it, that was it. It was all for You know, yeah. before, before we jump to Prison Architect, but sometimes it's interesting what doesn't work. Do you have a high-level thought on why, like, Subversion didn't work? Um, 
it was because it does have like yeah, it does have that the, yeah it does yeah. have like the pitch right like you know pitch is brilliant steal the money you the know pitch you, is brilliant. it's the heist yeah. right like this in in every in every heist movie ever and mm. every tv series that involves heist there's a mastermind yeah right? and the mastermind knows slightly more than the audience yeah right? and he's the smart he or she is the smart one who who knows the plan and has got it all in the back hand and they've always got like this quirky smile on their face and when it all seems like it's gone wrong they reveal that actually they had this in mind all along oh, and this yep. is all part of the plan and it's like the archetypal heist movie character yeah and in a video game you can't have that character because you're that character right <laughs> <laughs> and you can't be ahead of your own mind yeah um so when you're looking at this incredibly elaborate building that you want to break into you can't conceive of some dastardly brilliant plan to break anybody out um, um, because it's, it's too complex. It requires like a genius level mind. And so the game starts to reduce down to you can blow up this door with explosives mm -hmm. um, or you can crack through this window. Um, and, then, and so that, that's like a, like a critical missing part. Um, and then um, we had that this, we also had a a lot of technology that wasn't really suitable. A, part, a key part of the game pitch to me was that the city itself was completely randomly generated. Mm -hmm. um, just like in uh, Frontier, when you stop on any planet, like I was saying earlier, and there's a star base you know, there. I wanted every skyscraper to be procedurally generated. Yeah. You, when you went in, it would be an office full of detail. Yeah. And I wanted all the security systems to be procedurally generated. And all the camera networks and all the computer networks and the elevator shafts all to be procedurally generated which turned out just to be technologically completely insurmountable. Uh -huh. um, I never got it to work properly. But I did make a lot of very cool tech along the way. Right. So I kind of committed the cardinal game designer sin of having far more fun than the players were ever going to yeah. have. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's a Sid Meier line, actually. Yeah, I think yeah. it probably is. I might admit yeah, yeah, it yeah. Um, yeah. But Don't but ever have more fun than your players. Yeah, but it sounds yeah. like exactly what you're saying. Because I do think I do remember like the, the shots of the world, the, the cities that you generated in Subversion mm. and being like, oh, wow, that looks pretty cool. Yeah, but that also doesn't necessarily look like a game. So no, it wasn't. It never was a game. There was yeah. never a game. There was just a series of disconnected tech demos yeah. that were all incredibly good fun to make. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was delighted with uh, this various stuff. But you know, consider the prison rescue mission. Uh -huh. I imagined that I would make a mission where you could break into a fully formed prison. And, and there would be multiple ways of going in, and there would be all these cameras, and there would be guards walking a patrol route, um, and there would be jail bars everywhere, and the prisoners would follow a regime, and they would go to lunch, and then they would go to the yard, and then they would go back to their cell. And that's one mission in the game. Yeah, just one <laughs> and mission. And I then yeah. spent the next six years making that <laughs> simulation. Yeah. So this is why it's technologically insurmountable, right? In, because, you know, just that one mission is years and years of development of systems. Yeah. And then I knew that most players were just going to um, RPG, blow a hole in the wall, yeah. and pull their guy out, and then the mission was over. And you've invested all this time in simulating everything without any clear idea of really where the core game is going to be. You know? But I do think that, that that game has been made now. Actually, there's a couple of examples right. um, of games that have successfully captured heist in a video gamified form. Right. You know, it's just that I never managed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? What yeah. are those games? Um, one of them is Invisible Ink. Yeah, that's a good one. Definitely. Definitely. Without yeah. a doubt. I think they came the closest. Yeah. Um, Have you played Burgle Bro? Or Burgle Bros? Uh, it's, a, no. it's, a, it's a board game. 
actually. Oh, it's like a three-level board game where you have all you play you have you have all the archetypal characters and yeah. you have the lasers and the, the doors and the locks yeah. and you can fall from level to level. Anyway, it's it's pretty good too. There's also Monaco. Oh yeah, uh, sure. Wonderful. Of course it has the, the real time chaos aspect. Yeah. Which but thematically it's a heist game. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And it captured something about heist as yeah. well. Um are you gunpoint as well? Sure. Yeah. Gunpoint is just a wonderful, wonderful heist game where you bust the systems of a building open. Yeah. You know, but he was sensible enough to make the game two D, right? <laughs> <laughs> and make it, and thereby collapse it down into a, a more achievable aim. Don't forget as well. Um, Actually, all these games we don't are... use Unity or anything like that. Yeah. You know, I mean, these we, we were inventing a three D engine at the same time as we were inventing Subversion. Yeah. So these skyscrapers and all the technology was all being made up. Yeah. All these games you mentioned are essentially 2D games. Yeah, that's right. Except Darwinia. And, um, Except for which one? Darwinia. Oh, no, no, sorry. I meant all of those heist games you just oh, mentioned. Right. Invisible yes. Ink, Gunpoint, Yeah, Monaco. because I don't think... It, uh, you know, no, I'm not going to say that. I think it's significantly more doable to make a 2D heist game. Yes. <laughs> because, you know, the, the simulation is so much more controllable. Yeah. You want to be able to see it. You need kind of need to be able to see everything all at once. Yeah. You do. Yeah. Okay, well, let's jump to Prison Architect. Yeah. So, I'm coming back from the boat. Mm -hmm. I'm on the boat yep. with my wife coming back from Alcatraz. Yep. And I just said, I've had a really good idea. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're not going to believe it, but I think I want to. I think I want to quit Subversion. <laughs> right. I've been gabbing to her for four years straight. You yeah. know about how amazing how Subversion this great is game's going to be. It's going to be the biggest game oh, we ever made. No. You know. Why won't Mark get behind Subversion? Yeah. You know, he's such a dick. <laughs> you know, and um, and I think we were even scheduled. I think we were scheduled to give a talk about Subversion. Oh really? Oh boy. Yeah. And, and I just thought, yeah, I think I think it's done. I think this is such a good idea, right? And I, I and I bought a notebook, and I started writing down ideas, and I wrote like a ten-page quick design and I drew some pictures that were like a grid top-down grid it was going to be top-down 2d yep, yep. right the simulation was going to be there but instead of gubbins here me having to generate the world in incredible detail and complexity I was going to give you an empty field yep. right and the player was going to do the hard work right? <laughs> the player was going to build, build it for all you, the yeah. systems I was just going to provide the simulation right and then um, you know everything else would follow and I and I could I could I'd visualized the grid and the size of the cells and the guards moving up and down and, and it was all there. It's all there right from the start. Um, and um, so then I thought, right, so that's the good news. The bad news is that when I tell Mark this, um, he's going to quit on the spot <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, I've been telling him that subversion's uh, the next big thing. Um, and, you know, we're not in that great a shape right now. You know, we're kind of still hanging on a little bit. Um, and then I, you know, I sat down with him and I made a pitch for Subversion. So I made a pitch for Prison Architect yeah. to Mark. The first time I've ever pitched a game internally yeah. like, like that. Um, and I think at the end of it, he just went, oh, thank God, mate. Jesus. <laughs> you know, thank goodness. Yes, let's, let's ditch Subversion. And th right. this new game sounds fantastic, you know. I think Mark could see straight away, actually, the, the quality of this game. Sure. And I was talking about... Um, how it kind of it was kind of based on Dungeon Keeper, mm. like Dungeon Keeper itself was an inversion as well of like you know, sure, sure. there's that sort of old RPG game where you you were a knight in shining armor and you had to break into an evil lair. Right. And Peter Molyneux's genius breakthrough was that no, I'm going to be the one that builds the lair. Yeah. Right. And the and the the knights in shining armor are going to be the enemy breaking into my lair. Right. And at the time, 
mind-blowingly brilliant concept. Um, and um, I thought Prison Architect was a similar thing. It was like this inversion. Um, and the players were going to make all the content. So I started work on Prison Architect. Um, and uh, I, think, I think we developed it for a, a year and a half or so. Mm -hmm. um, very, very enjoyable development process. Like it felt really positive all the way through. Um, and um, and uh, we, had, we, had, we, we started hiring, we hired an artist called Ryan Sumo because we knew that this game was going to be all about prisoners living their lives. And right. so it wasn't well, going to be wireframe. You yeah, I met Ryan. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah cool. He's a, cool guy. Um, he's a really cool guy and a very yeah. good artist. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd seen his work in Space Chem, I think, and a couple of other places. And I thought that that's the kind of really crisp look because mm -hmm. it's going to be 2D and it's going to be top down because we're going to be drawing wall after wall, grids, grids, grids. It's going to be like a repeating pattern of cells over and yeah. over again. So it's really going to be a grid top down because it's so easy to draw lines, you know, on a horizontal vertical yep. grid. So from a game mechanics point of view, great. Um, but it needs to look like a real place. You need to feel like it's a prison that you're building. Um, and I knew then that it was also a really contentious, uh, rich, uh, rich topic, you know, to be mined um, because you know, prisons are a controversial part of society and how prisons operate is very controversial. And a lot of people have very different opinions on, on the value of prisons and what prisons should be like. Um, you know, and some, some people are very strongly of the opinion that prisons should be, you know, real hell holes, real disciplinary hell holes where people are going to be punished mm -hmm. for their crimes. And the fear of going to prison will prevent, you know, if you from committing a crime. Um, whereas other people think quite the opposite, and they actually think that prisons are a, a, an opportunity to reform people who are, who have fallen on very difficult times and have made a lot of mistakes, um, and that ultimately, ninety five percent of people that go to prison come out of prison at some point and go back into society, um, and so their time in prison is going to have an effect on their life, and then they're going to have an effect on society. Um, and you know there are many different approaches to building a prison, and right. so you know our concept was that we would let players try those out, you know. Yeah. Um, and we would do so without judgment, and we would say, you know, you are free to make a high security hellhole um, with armed guards on every uh, aisle, and, and you are also free to make a. a, a, a libertarian uh, <laughs> left-wing um, education center where uh, where you know people who have been convicted of crimes go to rehabilitate and and um, kick their addictions and so on and then return to society um, and then you know you're you're gonna also have to deal with the finances of that and the costings of all of that and all of the security of that as well how do you deal with the sense of I mean I don't want to ask this question this way, but I'm, I'm not sure what else to say. Like, are they both equally effective, or like, it, 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 maybe it's more like you put you put different obstacles in the way, depending on what which path people people choose. Well, it, it depends on your success metric, doesn't it? Right. <laughs> there isn't really a success metric in the game. It's just like like in SimCity or or Dungeon Keeper or many of those games. You simply build, you build and you build, and prisoners move into your prison. 
Right. Um, and then, um, you know, you can certainly build a high security prison that, that is very high security. Um, and if you do that, and you have armed guards everywhere, and it, all the prisoners are, are suppressed all day long, every day. It's like an in-game in concept. You know, they, right. They're suppressed by the authoritarian power all around them. Um, then the, there isn't really any rehabilitation, rehabilitation to speak of. Um, so they, they can't do any kind of um, GED programs or education programs or unsuccessful in those environments because the prisoners are, exist in such a state of fear. Um, so Chris, um, so when we're creating our, our games, you know, I just go into like this period of time where I'm like researching things and reading about them mm -hmm. and knowing that you're from the UK and you're doing like something that's closer to prisons in the United States, right? How much mm. research did, did where did, did you look for information? Did quite a lot of research. I read quite a few books about prisons. Um, and um, I, I, I went and met a, an ex-prisoner who'd been in prison for 20 years, um, a couple of times actually. And he'd written, a, he'd written a wonderful book about his experience in prisons. And he'd gone into prison as a young man, having committed quite a horrible crime, actually. Um, no real education, he'd been like a real problem child, so to speak, and he had like a really rough upbringing. Gone to prison, and then by the time he came out, he was like this terrifyingly educated scholar. <laughs> you know, he'd had this complete conversion, um, and, he, and he held multiple high-level degrees um, in writing and um, in philosophy, um, and he'd He'd set up and established pretty much single-handedly a whole prisoner education program at the prison that he was staying at, um, which had been running for several years by the time he finally was able to leave. And lots of other prisoners had come through. Um, and he'd helped loads of prisoners to kick addictions and things and to find their way. You know, and, he'd, and he'd found that support in that prison that they'd enabled him to do that. Um, so was that prison a prison that allowed prisoners to have these opportunities. It, it was, was it was by the time he left, <laughs> because oh. he'd made that happen mm -hmm. um, by you know by he'd had a complete conversion you know, and um, you know and he and he know and he and then he wrote this he wrote a column for a national newspaper for a while about incarceration and about um, rehabilitation and punishment. And all these wonderful topics, you know, that are really rich and complex, and they do not have simple answers. Um, and he talked about prisoners that he'd met and had completely let him down, and had, and had um, and had gone back to a life of crime, or had chosen to, you know, um, chosen to not try and help. And and you know, he'd accepted that, and he was never an apologist. He'd, he and he'd, you know, he would never, he he had never tried to excuse himself for. The, his earlier life, um, and then he wrote these two books. Um, his name was Erwin James, um, and he wrote these two books that were fantastic read about his life in prison and what it had been like. And that was a huge touchstone to me, you know, that there was this incredible, um, that this was what was possible, you know, that this was the extreme of what was possible, right? You know, and then, um, and you know, and um, at the other end of the spectrum. I also I watched I watched some documentaries about supermax prisons, um, like prisons. We have something similar in the UK, but there's in like like isolation prisons essentially, where inmates largely spend 23 hours a day in one cell on their own, 
um, and only really have an hour a day or so to go outside and exercise, like some sort of minimum exercise amount that's given. And they have no privileges. And the security is insane. And nobody ever escapes, you know. Um, but that is a successful prison because prisoners that go there are the, uh, have committed some of the worst crimes imaginable and they never escape. Yeah. They don't escape. They're, 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 they, they are punished, if you like, by being living in such awful experience, in all, such an awful place. Um, and obviously those prisons are often, um, uh, there's, a, there's the concept of the prison industrial complex. Yeah. They're often commercially run operations paid for by the government, but run by a private company. And so there's a sort of profit element to it as well. Um, and I, you know, and, you know I, I am still to this day fascinated by the unan unanswerable, difficult questions um, that all of this brings up because some prisoners can't go to a minimum security um, holiday home. Right, you know, because they'll they'll kill people, they'll 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 or they'll commit more crimes, and they'll escape, and and that can't be allowed. But at the same time, there are a lot of people that uh, spend an awful lot of their life in prison and come out worse, yeah, um, and go back to society and commit more crime again. Yeah. I so mean, this is the this is the state space that prison architect was able yeah. to go into, sure. <laughs> was able to explore. Well, know? it's it's you know. Maybe there, you know, there's no one single ideological approach that yeah. is going to answer all these questions, right? Like that's that's, right. that's ultimately where you're going to end up with. That's right. And you could make vast profits running a prison in the game, or you could have vast amounts of rehabilitation, and you would see the reoffending rate, which was simulated in the game, dropping down and down and down. But it didn't give you anything. You didn't yep. get anything for that. It was just a number that went down. I can only imagine I can only imagine researching something like this how many like um, emotional stories and yeah. probably just you know Yes, we met a prison guard as well. Um, okay. who you know he demanded to be completely anonymous. Uh -huh. He was an active prison guard. Um, and he told us all kinds of stories very much from the point of view of a guard you know operating in a prison most of the time um, bored out of his mind um, and but but every, every now and then something critically dangerous would happen very close to him you know so it was you know it's that worst kind of stress that you can imagine yeah. so being a soldier um, yeah yeah right. exactly exactly um, you know but it, that was his job and yeah. you know it's another completely different uh, series of stories about that um, so we, we tried to feed all this into the game and we tried to make um, we made a whole series of story chapters and we didn't, we you know, we, we knew, you know, uh, we really wanted to make sure the player understood that they were not building a theme park. Right. Um, and so at the very beginning of the game, you know, we've learned from Darwinia there needs to be tutorial <laughs> <laughs> and onboarding. And at the beginning of the game, you're, you're building this facility, you build this brand new facility. Um, and then you meet this prisoner who's on death row. And the facility that you've just built is the death row facility right? Right. this prison has just expanded to. In this particular nation, um, the death penalty is a thing in the game. And so um, the, he's been convicted and um, that now needs to be carried out. And so straight away we drop the player into this ethical conundrum um, of, um, you know, you're part of this, you know, and this is a contract, um, but this is a real person. And then um, 
and then we dive into the backstory of who that character is. So all the story scenes in the, in the beginning of the game are flashbacks to his life, and they're flashbacks to um, what happened to him and when he committed the crime and why he committed the crime, and then when he turned himself in and what happened then, and then how the prison system kind of failed him a little bit, and then that, that is all the story of the first chapter of the game. You know, because we wanted people to come out of that um, with no uncertainty that they're building prisons and not hotels. Right, <laughs> sure. Because they're actually quite structurally similar. <laughs> yeah. But thematically, you know, completely different. You know? um. so, so I have a question about the economy. Like, how were you able to take the economy that actually happens in prison here and turn it into gameplay? Like, how did you game? Yeah, I mean, th thematically, you are a private prison company in the game. So you, you get paid for prisoners. That's, that, that's the brutal bottom line of it. Every prisoner that you take has a cash value associated yeah. with them. This is how it is. Right? You are paid to house them. Um, and then there's a, series, there's a separate series of, re of grants that you can take. And the grants pay you money for accomplishing certain things. You know, so there may be, a, so for example, there may be a, a group, an external group that will pay you um, $50,000 to establish a, a reading program within your prison. You know, and they're willing to volunteer teachers or something like that. You know, or you know, a learn to be a cook type program. Um, and so, you know, you can run a full range of industrial and commercial operations within your prison. Um, you know, so you, if you're if you're struggling for cash, for example, you can get your prisoners to stamp out number plates <laughs> in a factory. Uh, you can build a factory within your prison and undercut all the other factories that are nearby, and you can get your prison labor to ram sheets of metal through machinery and then spit out um, number plates. And this was based on a documentary that I'd watched about um, a prison somewhere that was doing exactly this. They, were using, they, were, they, had, they had created a manual workforce, essentially, that were able to undercut everybody else. Um, so, you know... That's interesting to me because it's a way that the player needs money to keep expanding the prison. And then when you start bringing in the more dangerous prisoners, they start trying to escape and smash the place up. So it just costs more and more money to keep your prison running. Um, but um, running a workshop program does involve um, training your prisoners in like a minimum set of industrial skills. These are actual real world skills. And there's a whole range of real-world skills that you can train your prisoners to do. So if you, if you go that way in the game, almost every role in the, in the game that's accomplished by external hired staff can be performed by a prisoner. So the prisoners can run the kitchen, and they can run the laundry room, they can run the workshop, they can run the yards, and they can even run their own exercise classes. You can have libraries in there and you can run full education programs. Do you have yeah. spirituality in the prison? Yes, you, you do. So um, you, can build, you can build rooms of spiritual worship and you can bring in priests uh, from all the different world's religions to run, um, run these events. Um, and it leads to a sort of, it leads to like a positive emotional benefit. Um, and every, every single thing that you add to your prison brings with it a set of dangers. Um, so the workshop is one of the first that people run into because it seems like an objectively good idea that your prisoners gain some sort of industrial experience. You gain money from um, exploiting cheap workforce, in all fairness. Um, but the prisoners gain sudden access to 
screwdrivers and saws <laughs> and knives. Right. Right. Um, what can go wrong kind of thing. Right. And some of the prisoners, only a small number, but some of them decide to pocket those knives because they know later on that day they're going to be attacked. Um, and this is simulated in the game. The rivalries that exist between gangs and between prisoners are there. So Here's a question. Hmm. So when they're leaving the workshop, is there a system of checking? Like If you pay to have a system of checking, okay. yes. So you can install metal detectors all around your prison if you want. You can install them on the exit of a workshop and you can install them on the entrance to the canteen. And they need to be manned by a, a, a security guard for it to have any effect. And they hugely show, slow down the rate of prisoners coming through because everyone has to go through one at a time, like beep, right. beep, you know. Um, and so you get these huge traffic backlogs of prisoners who are starving, hungry, you waiting. You totally gamify that part, like paper, please. You know, paper, mm -hmm. please, you have to like, right. check, make yeah, sure. That's right. That's right. So the consequence is that the prisoners at the back don't get to eat because you, you didn't get everyone through the metal detector fast enough. Um, and it's only really, it's not 100% reliable either. You know, so the metal detectors will go off wrongly like 10% of the time, and prisoners get frisked as a result. Well, prisoners hate being frisked. They hate it, and the guards hate it too. So the prisoners get a little bit more angry every time they're frisked. So if they spend all day walking around, just being constantly frisked and searched, it makes their anger go up more and more, you know? And then there's an overall prison anger level that's all part of the simulation. And when it, and when it starts to get above a certain point, that's when problem fights start to break out, you know? So it always has a consequence. But if you don't do it, they, you, know, you end up with a lot of contraband all over the place. You end up with, you know. Is this when you bring in the healer or the pastor to kind of bring down that level? Yep, that works. And it's, um, it uses up time, obviously, and it costs money. And there's a there's safety element as well. that You can't always control who's going to be in there. And it's sort of on the rehabilitation path. You know. Do you have visitors coming in? Too? Yeah, if you build it. <laughs> you don't have anything. That, this yeah. is the thing to realize, you have an empty plot of, of sand. You know, you have a, a kilometer square of dirt and a road. That's what you have. Yeah. Everything else is up to the player. So and, you can and, have visitation. And, and I believe he, it's interesting, but the way you're asking the questions, I wouldn't be surprised this is somewhat similar to the early access. Like This was a game that went through a long early access it phase, right? Years and presumably, access. there was tons of people who were asked these questions like, hey, can you do this? And you're like, Oh, okay, yeah. Like basically, like if they expect it, you got to figure out a way to they did. put it in. What year was it early access? It came out in 2012, and it was we did a good four or five years. We got into a cycle where we did one update a month. Yeah. For four or five years, I think we did 50 updates or something preposterous like that. And mm -hmm. um, every month we added some new feature to the game. We added an upgrade, so it's like, yep, yeah, you can have visitation now. Here's the visitation booth. You know, it costs yep. money to install takes up loads of space. Every day at 8 a.m., you can have two hours of visitation, you know, and then sudden, and then players install it, and the happiness of your prisoners goes up. Um, and, then, and then the next time they do like a sort of mass search of all prisoners' cells, they find there's suddenly all these drugs and narcotics everywhere. <laughs> there's suddenly all these little packs of, uh, of narcotics hidden away in people's pockets because the visitation room is just a room like this. And their relatives bring in, bring in all these drugs and hand them to under the table. And so then we have the next version of visitation, which is like a glass perspex window. Um, and the, you, know, you look at each other through, and you know, the prisoner's on one side and the visitor is on the other, and they speak to each other through telephones. And it's more expensive, and the prisoners hate it because they don't get to you know, touch their loved ones, they don't get to yeah. kiss their loved ones. Um, it stops the contraband um, dead in its tracks, um, but everybody hates it. 
you know, because it's it's just inhumane. It's yeah. it's horrible. I was um, yeah, it's interesting. I was, at some point, I was going to ask you, you know, like why prisons, right? Like because you're making a management game. It could have been about a cruise ship. It could have been about you know a theme park, mm -hmm. a shopping mall, all sorts of things. But you've you've really, I think, kind of answered the question just because there's all of these tensions that are just inherent yeah. to, to prisons, and even like what your what your priorities are, right? It yeah. can be different. Yeah, and it's and that's up to the player, really. You know, yeah. to decide whether prospect screens are a good trade-off or whether they want to take the risk of contraband coming in but go for their happiness or whether they just don't even bother with visitation, you know? I mean, you can use, you can abuse it. You know, visitation can be a right that you hold over prisoners' heads and take away when they uh, refuse to behave, yeah. you know? Um, and so it can be used as an uh, offensive weapon. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've lost your visitation rights. Yeah, you know? yeah. It is a powerful um, abuse of power. You know that guards have over their prisoners that stay in your prison. Um, so the game is on early access for a very long time. Mm. How did you filter out the feedback that's coming in? Um, we we kept our eyes on the forums and we kept our eyes on Twitter and um, we engaged a lot, especially in the early days. We did a lot of Twitter polls asking people what they would like us to concentrate on. We actually had listed and, and gamed out um, most of the stuff that people came up with. You know, because we just once once our minds got into gear, we just we just we would sit down, we would go to a, a bar or a pub, and we would talk for four hours <laughs> about the various ways that visitation could manifest in the game and its effects. <laughs> right? Yeah. Sure. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We even you know even even the water pipes that you are, that you build as an engineer that connect all the toilets together and all the sinks together and the showers together become easy escape tunnels for people to dig when they have sufficient tools, right? Because one day we were watching Shawshank Redemption and we watched him dig a tunnel all the way along the waste pipe, right? Because that's the weak point. Yep. And, you know, the, these eight-foot-tall perimeter walls that you can never escape have a waste pipe that runs right underneath, right, that you can tunnel through. Yeah. And so every single element of the game ended up adding four or five different positive and negative things you know, to the mechanics of the game, and also all these really fascinating, uh, nuanced discussions. People would, you know, would come at it of like, well, I think perspex screens of the prison are just unbelievably inhumane, aren't they? Obviously, and then they would they would start to understand the the unanswerable yeah, why conundrum exist, yeah. of what well what form of visitation yeah. would you like to yeah. have? Then? There's probably a reason why yeah. everything is done a certain way in a prison. Those those things mm -hmm. may be misapplied. Yeah. Against various prisoners, but there's probably always a reason. Yeah. Right. All of it. And we've only and you know, just we've only we haven't even touched on the whole um right wing approach. The the the, the much more serious um punishment form of prisons that you're able to build. Mm. You know, you, you, the armed guards, the schedules of uh, surveillance and stuff. You can wiretap the phones in the visitation booth. Mm. Okay. And then you can listen to the prisoners telling their partners all their plans for who they're going to stab tomorrow or, or which gang they've joined or where all the contraband is hidden. And you can gain intelligence from doing that by violating their rights to privacy. Yep. Um, and every, every element of the game just seemed to flower into even more possibilities. You know? And that's why we worked on it for so long. Yeah, yeah. It was a wonderful time, to be honest, because the game was, the game was selling brilliantly. You know? So you know, we've just come out of a period of total financial catastrophe. You know, and, and finally, even though DEFCON was a success and even though Uplink was a success, 
Prison Architect was a massive success. Right. right? Vast quantities of sales. Um, and I think it sold, it sold uh, three or four million copies yeah. um, by the time we, we ended our stewardship of that game right. um, and ultimately sold it. Um, because we had done everything we could do and we had done, we had done so much work on it and we'd done these 50 updates yeah. um, and I was ready to move on. You know, I was ready. That's a brave call. Yeah. That is a brave call. It was You're a, ready to move on and start working on something it's else. It's a really and tough give call. Give it to someone else who can continue developing. Yeah. yeah. It was a really tough call. So um, let, let us know a little bit. Let, tell us a little bit about this because not everyone knows that you sold it. Yeah. Um, well, Paradox approached us um, and... Um, we had already been involved. We'd, be, we'd been involved with this company called Double Eleven, and they had made the console version of Prison Architect because we had learned <laughs> through bitter experience um, that we are not the best people to develop Xbox versions of our games. <laughs> and so um, this other company, Double Eleven, had, had, we'd, we'd entered a contract with them, and they'd done an amazing job of making a console version for Xbox and PlayStation. Right, and you know it's just a just a different process, um, and so, uh, and and Paradox approached us and said that we would love to take Prison Architect, um, and we would love to um, keep developing it further, and uh, we're going to in Double Eleven are going to do the work. And um, can I say that? Paradox didn't approach us. Who approached us? We approached them. We approached Paradox. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to keep this We're, in there. Yeah, amongst others. <laughs> it wasn't just Paradox. Mm. There were other people that were involved in that. Yeah, you see, okay. you're asking about the business side of yeah, things yeah. now. This isn't really <laughs> it's my a world. Different, it's a different yeah. podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, now that you kind of talked through your career, looking back, why is it that you've you know, devoted your life to making video games? Um... I mean, that's, that's, that's quite a hard question to answer, you know. <laughs> I, I can't really put my finger on it. Um, I've always loved making games right from the start, you know, in, in tandem with playing games. Um, and there have even been times when I have decided that um, I need to stop making games mm -hmm. um, because, you know, it leads to economic ruin <laughs> <laughs> and heartache, you know, when you work on something for years and nobody wants to play it. Yeah. Um, because it's quite personal, you know, and, um, you know, we are, we, it's, it's very hit and miss, you know, out, out of the games we've made, the ones we've listed, and Scanner Sombra, the next one, only three of them were commercially successful, and yeah. three of them are commercial failures, you know, because we, because despite Mark's um, in, uh, desire, <laughs> we just don't make the same game again, yeah. ever. We always make something weird and quirky and odd. Um, and, and, we, and we go to we go to themes and, and territories that are unusual. Yeah. So we, we sort of make it hard for ourselves. But those are the ideas that come to my head, and and um, I can't really um, I can't really seem to stop myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's a compulsion. You're right. <laughs>